3: What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of True Crime and Cocktails. It's your bitch, Christy Oxborough, and with me, as always, the blink to my 182, Miss Lauren Ash. How you doing? I was gonna say
4: jazzed and frazzled at the same time, and then I was like, is that fra-jazzled?
3: <laughs> well, the, the, the the That's a little close to, like... Vagina for me somehow. Yeah, and then I thought of yeah.
4: vajazzling, and remember that whole f- whole craze where where, yes, where gals
3: were were re-
4: rhinestoning it. Not um, us, to be clear. I never vajazzled, That's true. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, here's the thing. I'm, I'm I'm jazzed. I'm here with you. It's a that's a beautiful yeah. thing. I'm I'm jazzed about the episode. It's been a bit of a it's been a trying it's been a trying day, and a and a bit of a chaotic week. Mm-hmm. All good. Yeah. Nothing. No, no complaints. Zero complaints from me, dogs. Except a couple complaints. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Thank you for going full Randy Jackson on that.
4: <laughs> it felt right. It felt right. Yeah. Um, uh, yes. Anyway, by now, uh, certainly I think the, the most of the world who cares to follow anything that I do has found out that I have a new job coming up yeah I've been cast on a new show called uh, not Dead yet on ABC uh, insert your applause thank you kindly um, <laughs> very excited about that uh, but it's it's coming up quick it's coming up quick yeah so we're we're starting um, we're shooting 13 episodes and it's 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 starting very soon and so this week I didn't realize less than two weeks ago that this week would be chaotic. And this is the week, of course. I was researching this episode, so so when I say I was researching mm-hmm. down to the wire, I cannot express just how down to the wire it was. And it was one of these mm-hmm. things where like stuff kept getting added that I I had to do. Like I, it's not a choice. It was like I have to go. I have to go do a, a costume fitting. I have to go do these things. I have to, um, sure. which again. All positive. So far, by the way, no complaints. Very excited. No complaints. Um, The complaint comes when today it was like, I finally was ready to go. I had everything done. I had all my meetings out of the way. I had everything. And I was like, great. I've got a few hours. I can knock this out. I can finish it all up. Everything's going to be fine. Mm -hmm. Beep, beep, beep. I'm like, what is that? Beep, beep, beep. It's a smoke alarm. And here's the thing. I recently changed the batteries in all my smoke alarms because this had happened a couple months ago. And I'm like, there's no, they're up to date. There's no need. We're good. There's, we're all good. Mm -hmm. When Mm -hmm. I say to you, and look, I know that people are going to say, Lauren, you can't be too safe. I think I have too many smoke alarms in the house. There's so many smoke alarms in this house. There's two that are within six feet of each other. And to that I say, I feel like one of them's going to. Is that going to be the thing that saves me? I mean, I guess I shouldn't even joke, but it's just, it's just Mm -hmm. that there's so many. There's just so many. Um, And so I got out the set of nine volts because I went around and I, you know, took the batteries out to see. It, it, It was more than one of them. This is the other thing they start to mess with you. Okay. So then it's like, there's a couple of them going. Of so a couple of them stop, but then I figure out that it's like, oh no, whatever. So then do you know what I do? It, 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 because at this point it's been going on 20 minutes and it, I'm staring into the face of madness. Beep, beep, beep. Staring into the face of, it's every 10 seconds. Beep, yeah. beep, beep. Um, I, I just changed the batteries and all of them again. I had bought enough nine volts for the next changeover. Guess what? I changed them all to fresh again. Cause I was like, maybe this will do it. And I need to work. Yeah. I can't be doing this. Um. Of course. Beep, beep, beep. Still. And I'm like, what is happening? I don't get it. I've tested all of them and then I pressed one to test it and then somehow they all went. So then all there's like, and then all of a sudden the like, my, my alarm system starts to go and it's like calling security, calling security. <laughs> like, I'm just a woman trying to research uh, a, a true crime episode. Of um, Of course. So, long story short, I finally figured out it was only one more that was beeping. And when I tell you I ripped it out of my ceiling, like I <laughs> ripped wires, I did. I was like, I, I felt like I was trying to defeat Hal on the spaceship in Space Odyssey. <laughs> like
3: it was like I was <laughs> dealing
4: with a sentient computer. Um, and that did do it. And the good news is, is that I think this one can just stay down. Because, again, there is, there is three others Within, I'd say between six and eight
3: feet of that one. So I don't know that I need the fourth in that area. I think maybe we got that area covered. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask a question. I know neither of us know the answer to. Please, what's uh, what's the distance you're supposed to have between? I'd I'd love to know that detectors. I, I don't know because I'm like, is it by room? Is it by distance? I'm not
4: sure, but I think in yeah. this house I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Nine. I think there's 10 in this house. And this is a bungalow. Doesn't 10
3: feel high? Um I'm now concerned for my family's safety cuz I don't <laughs> think, Now I'm like I don't think we have enough. We certainly don't have 10. Um Yeah. There's like oh god, yeah, there's like two upstairs, one in the basement, two yeah, I have maybe. Maybe five. I may oh have God, more is that than not ten. Enough? I may have more than ten is the other thing. That does feel like a it lot. Feels Again, like, yes, it feels like it feels like for the best, but that feels it feels like a lot.
4: Yeah. Anyway, long story short, I timed it because if Christy Oxborough and Lauren Ash are passionate about anything, it's about facts and it's about making sure we present the proper information because I didn't want to come on here and say that this was going on for X amount of minutes and then it was like, that was an exaggeration. So I looked, 35 minutes. That ordeal took me 35 real-time full minutes, which I know people might say like, that's not so bad, but with the beep, beep, beep for 35 minutes every 10 seconds, yeah, that was, that was, my chest is still tight. It's still oh. tight. So then I yeah. got my work done. Uh, I, I texted Christy and I was like, I just need to lay down for 20 minutes because I love to crush a nap. And of I course. immediately was into a deep sleep, like deep dreaming, like whatever. And then bing, nice. bong! And I was like, there is no justice. Like there's just no justice. <laughs> there's no justice.
3: It is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, just a never ending parade of... One crazy making thing after another.
4: Yeah. Again. No complaints about anything of course real. But complaints about the about the the, the bingin' and nonsense. the bongin'. The, the 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 bells and the whistles.
3: Yeah. <sighs> yeah, look. Look, I I get it. I get the madness of the smoke detector. I mean, I don't get that full level. Ours go will go off. One of them. They all, we change the batteries at different times, but so they all go off at different times. But it'll just be the highest pitch, single little chirp, and then it's quiet for like a minute. And then it does that chirp again. And yeah, my husband will rip it down if he needs to because it always, always starts when we're we've maybe been in bed for like 20 minutes. So you've been in bed enough that you're like, I'm comfortable. I'm ready to go to sleep. And then we hear that noise and we're like, is it, that, is it the one outside our room? Is it one of the ones down the hall? We don't know. And then it's like, is it going to irritate us to try and sleep all night? And the answer is, yeah. Well,
4: I did read online that there is a phenomenon about why they do tend to do it at nighttime. And I didn't fully read the article. But it, there is sure. something about the temperature change that it's, yes, that if the batteries ah. are low, then, then when the temperature changes – I I should have really read the article, but that is an actual thing that it, because people do complain that it's like, why is it always at night? But there's actually like science behind it, apparently. Oh, that's Um, fascinating. Yeah. But the other thing I should just mention too, is that my house echoes in a really weird way. Like the layout of the house, like if somebody's trying to talk to you in one area, the voice sounds like it's coming from everywhere. So it's truly almost impossible to discern which where, which of the 10 alarms it's coming from. And I also should just add, because I think I may have mentioned this recently on the show. I don't know if I have or not. I am severely hearing impaired in one ear. I have lost 60% of hearing in one of my ears. People don't know this about me. So also it makes it very difficult (laughs) because my general ability to well here um but to hear from which direction is off like my equilibrium is always yeah. off so yeah it was it felt like if there was a if there was a hell
3: <laughs> you know i'm so sorry that's, that's all right look i know most of your things are positive and it's yeah. only it was only really like the last half of today that tried to yeah. bring you down um yeah. i'm going to say this In in my attempt to somehow erase that part from your brain. Uh, Please. Very quickly, my two younger children, 11 and 6, got it in their minds that they wanted to run a restaurant out of our home. (laughs) My my husband and I would be their only customers. Like, that was the bit. (laughs) So, okay. Got it. If I've I've, uh, learned anything... This is just a phase kids go through. If they have, like, play food and play kitchens at home, it starts very young where you're handed, like, a plate of stuff that you're like, that's barely an entree. Like, you don't know what that is. It's just play food, whatever. Um, But then they have that brief moment where they're like, I want to cook you something. And you're like, okay. And it's just their thing. But they, I'm talking, like, they made menus. They came up with a schedule, which is Monday to Friday, different hours. But like, uh, I think Monday's 11.45 to 12. 15-minute window. Better get your order in. (laughs) A hundred percent. And then it changes by like five minutes. So it's like all of a sudden it's like 11.50 to 12.05. And Fridays, today was the day they started to open. And it was like eleven. 55 to 12.05 or something. And we're like, ooh, that's not enough time to cook us a meal. (laughs) But bless them, it's like they had like the desserts, they had the drinks, they had, you know, it was like pizza pops, one or two. Waffles, one, two or three. It's like uh, understood what we can eat here. Well, my husband and I got Chinese food last night. And so we're like, well, we both want Chinese leftover Chinese food. (laughs) So we're like, can we order off menu? And we did. And it it was very sweet. And he felt the need. He had to bring us our plates. And then they ended up feeding themselves. And he had the little brother, you know, bring us our menus. And he handed the menu and was like, welcome to our restaurant. Thank you for coming. I hope you're going to have a good day. Would you like a drink? And it's like, it's wild. So I'm like, okay, great. So we eat the meal. We're all done. I am walking down the hallway And my 11-year-old calls after me, oh, 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 bathroom's on the right. (laughs) (laughs) And I laughed so hard because I didn't see it coming. (laughs) I was just like, okay, thank you. And then in the end, that bugger went and got a a dollar. I was going to say a loony That's what we call them up here. A dollar from his piggy bank. Gave it to his little brother and said, that's for being such a big, good helper, buddy. And I was like, oh, that's, that's beautiful. Like, and so then I was like, oh, God, what do you pay at a restaurant like this? They didn't put prices on there. It's so their hard to know. Thing. So I was like, how do you know? What do you do? And I was like, I was just going to leave some cash on the table. But I was like, I don't have any cash. Well, it turns out in my wallet, I had like a gift card to a dollar store. And so I was like, nice. So I put it on the table and I was like, I I don't know what you accept for payment here, but here you go. And it was like a $10 gift card. I have no idea where I got it from. The joke will be that it won't have any money on it, but I'll take them. Yeah. So I'll just pay for whatever they get. And I was like, if you guys maybe could split that for the meal. And he's like, is this $10? And I was like, it's from, you know, the store. You can get a toy. You can get candy. You can get whatever you want. And they were elated. And then, but they were also like watching the clock and we're like yeah it's time for you guys to get out
4: we've got another seating coming in so
3: right well it was like we're closing it's a friday like we'd like to like (laughs) we got big
4: weekend plans yeah i was
3: like okay and i we commented we're 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 surprised they're not gonna open up tomorrow for the weekend yeah my middle one just goes oh well we like our weekends off actually oh so i'm like oh oh i see how it is I see how it is. So there is now a paper on our island in the kitchen that says, we're closed. We'll be open soon. <laughs> so I don't know how to tell you this. Yeah. hmm But that child's an actor. I know. I know. I, we, I have been saying uh, for at least the last nine years of his life, I'm going to see a lot of one-man shows in my lifetime. He says... He doesn't have the 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 feeling that he's going to do anything. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, no, he fully committed to this bit. He changed his outfit because the colors better matched what he felt their logo would be. They put a sign on their door down the hallway that says main office for uh, mm-hmm. the, the bro's diner. He hasn't been yeah. on a stage yet and gotten a real laugh, has he? Well, that that's the thing. He, it's, he has had laughs, but not in front of a large crowd. Yep. And I, that's going to be his that's, tipping point. Yep. And we're like, well, at some point soon, you're going to be offered, like, you can try out for, like, a school play or something. And he's like, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm like, no, he needs, he's going to hear applause. Or he's going to get a reaction from a very large group. And that's going to be enough for him to, to to push him over the edge. Yeah I truly believe it. Yeah. The yeah.
4: the bathrooms on the right is yeah. such a
3: ugh, delicious it detail. Was, it
4: was unexpected it's, but that's, so but that's what actors, that's what actors do, right? Like the whole point is, is like, or, or the, like the, whatever people want to talk about is like, we observe and then we, because we, we observe humanity, we observe, and then we, we reflect, right? Like of that's course. the whole thing. And that's exactly what of he course. was doing. He wanted to, he's oh, yeah. observed what that experience is like. And now he is recre he is acting, um, the experience for you. He's recreating it and, and acting oh, yeah. it, reflecting it to you. So yeah, Good luck.
3: <laughs> oh oh yeah he was so so committed it's I to love the bit it. like to the point where when before I was going down the hall I'm like I'm just gonna leave my cell phone here if it's okay and then I'm gonna go I'll be right back and I'll pick it up you can leave the doors unlocked there aren't doors but I'm like you can leave the doors unlocked and I'll just swing in and get it and he goes okay yeah we'll wait and like he like, so hustle he was also, lady. He was also
4: doing a character of, like, the the put-upon maitre d' who really wants uh-huh. to, like, TikTok it off. Like, yeah, yeah, good luck. This kid's yeah, going to be in improv classes before you're, you know. I know. Yeah. You're going to be watching well, a, lot of, a lot of one-man shows. It's going to get, yeah, it's going to be yeah. tough.
3: Yeah, and then it's going to totally become the, I think it's a TikTok audio where it's going to be my husband and I sitting there watching something and then we turn and look at each other. Oh my God, is this play about us? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it so, is. So I can't wait, but Bathrooms on the Right, uh, oh, one bathrooms of the funniest, the right. funniest things that I, uh, I've i heard in a long time. The layers
4: to that are just, again, delicious. Um, yeah. I also want you to know I still had the article pulled up on my phone, so very of quickly. Of course. Because I can't. Uh the the low battery chirp mode, um, sorry, the battery characteristic can cause a smoke alarm to enter the low battery chirp mode when air temperatures drop. Most homes are the coolest between 2 and 6 a.m. That's why the alarm may sound a low battery chirp in the middle of the night and then stop when the home warms up a few degrees. So it's possible yeah. that if the house is cold enough, it may not actually be that the battery's low.
3: It's just having that reaction. Interesting. Well... And your home. You ice like cold. It chilly, ice cold. But and the look, joke is, is that it. today,
4: yeah, today it was warm in here though. That's the joke. But maybe that's why. Maybe it was the difference in temperature. Maybe that has something to do with it.
3: Oh, because you're a, <laughs> even the batteries were like, what's happening? It could be that. Why, we, why are we warm? Stop it. Make a noise. It. Get her to stop. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I get that. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, oh God. Yeah, this, God, what a day. Yeah. What a day. That's the thing. It's never just one. No. Nope. It's always like a collection of things. Yep. But. Yeah. Uh, speaking of collections. Yes. What, uh, what you drinking over there? Because yes. I assume there's at least two, if not three.
4: There's only two today, which feels insane. Hey! But I have, uh, one thing I've got going here is a, is some water in this beautiful... Um, a uh, friend of the podcast, Stephanie Beatrice, she couldn't make it to my last party, and she sent these personalized um, wine glasses. there, plastic for the pool, and it says "Casa Ash." No one will judge you, and that is exactly the the way I would like to refer to my home. Uh, so I'm have I got some water in one of those because I like to feel fancy, and uh, then I got a large diet coke from McDonald's because that's the kind of that's <laughs> just where we're at. I had that I had that delivered. Yeah. I was like I
3: after everything I. I need some caffeine because this is, this is real. now. D- did you just get the drink? No. <laughs> okay, that's my girl. Because I'm gonna tell you, a couple of hours ago, I had this moment of like, well, depending on when our record is done maybe I'll go get some fries. <laughs> well, you'll love this. I was like, yeah.
4: I need something else in there also to like make the minimum. Like I can't just have them bring me just of a course. Diet Coke. But all I really wanted was fries. So I feel like that makes, that's like we're sinking. You know what I mean? Like our cravings oh, are course. sinking. But then you'll love this. I was like, you know what? I'm gonna get fries, but then I'll just get six nugs. You know what I mean? Just like, of just course. a just a snack. Just a light snack. And then the dream, the dream happened. On the day that I wasn't that hungry. Seven, there seven? was seven in there. And you know what? That feels like a good omen based on the beep, beep, beep I dealt with all the all before. So maybe that means yeah. you're done with that now.
3: Yes. Here we go. That was the universe telling you, you know what? We're sorry. Lucky number seven. Turning around. Luck is going another way now. Yep. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, good. For Turn you. the
4: beeps around. <laughs> Your hell is now over. I don't know.
3: Sometimes they're not all good. They're not all good. Are you kidding me? Shut your mouth. They're all golden hits as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, I mean, there's nothing too exciting over here. I'm doing water. I'm also doing, uh, for reasons I can't explain, uh, Coke with a nice cherry whiskey. Okay. I don't know. I'll join you I the half. I'll join you. I the don't half. think I've ever had alcohol while I'm driving the bus. So well, toot, brace toot. us all. Can't wait. Uh, but betw- between in the breaks to help sop up the alcohol, just a jumbo can of Pringles. So <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah, because that was as close to fries as I could get in the moment. Of course. Plus, with the lid on, I can't smell them. If I could, if fries are sitting here and I could smell them. It'd be like moving the microphone far away and just like I just like <laughs> getting in there. Oh, I can't even talk about it. Thank I can't you even for talk about it. Thank you for ng Because that's yeah, <laughs> that's exactly it. I I I mean, I'm gonna pay so much closer attention to how I eat fries next time to see is that do I eat them like a beaver on a log? Like I don't know. We all do. We're Canadian. Come on. <laughs> Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, sense. Beavers are on the. Nope. I tried to turn it into a. Beavers on our money. Nope. Oh yeah. Mhm. Oh, because they're on they're they're on a nickel, right? The beaver is on the nickel. Okay. I love that. I should know that. Probably more than you, because who would see Canadian coins more often? But I love how quickly you're like, that. But when you're you know. a-
4: when you're away from it, the images stay in your mind and in your heart.
3: Hey, yeah. oh, that's nice. Yeah, that's nice. Uh, do you want me just to get into it? I think we should because I don't know how long this is going to be. To be honest <laughs> with you, this is this
4: is a little chaotic. So yeah, I think we should
3: we should dive in. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, look, dear listeners, you're in for a treat because this is a new type of episode we've never done before. Something new. Bring it in for season four, more, 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 more. So let's get into it. In the first of our new Prosecutor Profile series, Lauren is in the driver's seat tonight highlighting, the. sorry, tonight really threw me and I loved it a lot, uh, highlighting the career of one of the most prolific lawyers of the 20th century, Marsha Clark. She is primarily known as one of the prosecutors in the O.J. Simpson trial, but there is so much more to her story. So sit back and get ready for Lauren to tell you all about Marcia's life before she was a lawyer, highlight some of her most famous cases, and answer the question we are all dying to know. Were she and Christopher Darden ever actually a couple? <laughs> Lauren Ash reports. <laughs>
4: Now, what I like about this is typically it's Christy yeah. Oxborough investigates or Lauren Ash investigates, course. but this felt like I'm reporting. You know what I mean? This feels like a different thing to me. This is more journalism uh, than the than investigation to me. So that's why I made that change. And I didn't need to give all of that explanation, but here we are. <laughs> oh, just getting by. Two women. Getting by. My... Yeah. Uh, so listen, I am... So excited to talk about Marsha Clark. It has been a true pleasure getting to research her. And I have to say, I feel like she is really known for the OJ case. Um, But of course, episode 71 of our show, Nicole Brown Simpson, we do talk a a lot in depth about the OJ Simpson trial. So I do touch on that in this episode. Of course, it would be impossible not to, but I don't get into it with extreme depth simply because um, we've talked about it on the show and it is just a part of her life and career and if I did get into it in a big way this would be eight hours long and while some huh. of you I know think that would be great I think that that might cause me to uh, beep 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 go into the into the yeah. darkness so yeah <laughs> So I've done my best to try and pull as much um, information I didn't know, as many interesting things, and we're just going to see how it goes. Uh, Before we get started, as always, I will give a trigger warning. There will be mentions of sexual assault in this episode, so uh, take that trigger warning if you need it. Marsha Clark was born Marsha Rachel Klecks on August 31st, 1953 in Alameda, California. The daughter of Roslyn and Abraham Klecks, Marsha is the eldest of two children with a brother who is six years her junior, who is now an engineer. It seems he's shied away from his famous sister's spotlight over the years as I couldn't even find his name, and when it appeared to me that he really didn't want to be found, I chose to stop looking out of a respect to his privacy." Raised in a Jewish family, Marsha's father, Abraham, was born and raised in Israel and came to California to pursue his education and de- degree, and then married Marsha's mother, Rosalind, who was from New York. And he has remained, obviously, with his family in the United States as a federal bureaucrat ever since. Um, Abraham worked as a chemist for the FDA, or Food and Drug Administration, and due to this job, the family moved many, many times. They lived in New York, Michigan, Maryland, and California more than anywhere else. Rosalind was a homemaker. Over the course of their lives. So, friends of Marcia's in junior high have described her as confident, an early smoker, and the first to wear eye makeup. By 14, she seemed 24. She wore dangling earrings. She wore hip huggers, clogs, her long brown hair was straight, parted in the middle. <laughs> I just love these descriptions of her being so literal. I think, I think yeah. when when you know journalists were asking, like, tell us about her, it was like I don't know whether they expected like so many
3: uh, physical attributes. I think people were asking for more. It, usually, it's yeah. usually it's like, what are they like? Yeah. Oh, her hair was so long and straight. I know. No, no, no. Like, what was she personally like? Well, an early oh, smoker, clogs, an early. <laughs> exactly. I was like, <laughs> okay.
4: okay. Suzanne Devlin went to high school with Marsha in Staten Island. They were in drama club together, and she said regarding Marsha, I remember shawls and scarves. Again, I don't know why this is <laughs> These are the things we're leading with, but here we are. It
3: clogs, shawls, scarves. We're yep. really painting a picture of an era.
4: Absolutely. She had an eccentric, dramatic flair about her. I always admired her from my little corner. I was so far out of her league. When she deigned to speak to me, I was usually flabbergasted. At 14, I was not a sophisticated lady, Devlin said. They had to stuff me, teach me how to walk. That was something Marcia didn't have to do. That was what made her unique. She walked in like that. What struck me about her, being a local girl from Staten Island, was Marsha, at 14, was a sophisticated person. She was mature. She could play women in their mid-20s with cigarette holders wearing devastating gowns. I love a few things about this. First of all, I love the term devastating gowns. I think that's fabulous. Sure. And secondly they had to stuff me i think she meant maybe the bra the bra but i again yeah. i just wanted to speculate there cuz that was a tough choice of words um but but now we're getting a little bit of a of, of a bigger picture again the sophistication the confidence these kinds of things seeming of older than her years etc devlin goes on to say about marsha Marcia didn't have a chance to adapt to life's changes, moving from one place to another. She didn't have a lot of time to formulate close relationships. You could feel that about her. She was very cautious about getting involved in relationships, male or female. She wasn't one who could be vulnerable easily. I felt that about her. Marcia graduated from Susan E. Wagner High School, a public school in the Manor Heights section of Staten Island, New York City. She then studied at the University of California, Los Angeles, graduating in 1976 with a degree in political science. Next, she earned a Juris Doctor degree at Southwestern University School of Law. A Juris Doctor degree is also known as a Doctor of Law degree and is the standard degree obtained to practice law in the United States. Some have said that there have been basically three men in Marsha's life, her two ex-husbands and her brother. Her brother is the one person that some say she is the closest to of all. Her romances are another story. Uh-huh. Friend Rosalind Dauber, who has known Marsha since they were both 10, says Marsha always had very, very handsome boyfriends. That was the sting- the single distinguishing characteristic that they all shared. That was the only common thread that I know. She wasn't looking for a rich man or a powerful professional. <laughs> Again, I love this quote because I feel like what Rosalind is kind of suggesting is that Marsha's main criteria for the men she dated was that they were <laughs> hot. And uh, she was
3: successful enough for both of them. Well, listen, she was also very young at this time. You know what I mean? Yes. So, again, like, uh, I think we can give Marsha a bit of a break there. Um, like, well, in high school, you're going to gravitate to hot.
4: And listen, so like, I will post on our yeah. socials. Uh, Marsha Clark was also uh, a pretty smoking hot herself. So,
3: it's... Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
4: Um Now, many sources have reported that Marsha was 18 when she met her first husband, Gabriel Horowitz, um, and and it's also been reported that they were both students at UCLA at the time. It's also been reported that after dating from 1974 to 1976, they were married. But that seemed a little odd to me, because Marsha would have been 18 in 1971. So does that mean they were friends for three years before they started dating in 1974? I don't know. So because Christy and I are obsessed with timelines and details and just can't let these things go, I dug <laughs> deeper. And I decided to consult Marsha's 1997 book, Without a Doubt, and let me tell you, it's, it says a, has a markedly different story from what has been commonly reported. So let me share with you some of Marcia's words. My girlfriends and I tended to congregate at a joint across the street from Cantor's. That is a famous all-night kind of like deli diner in Los Angeles. Oh, sure. Yes. It was there I met my first husband. I wasn't looking for a husband or even a boyfriend. I had no desire to be added to anyone's list of conquests. My friends and I had finished eating, and when I was aware that one of the sharks was cruising our way, I was about to warn my friends to ignore him when he pulled up a chair and sat down next to me. I half turned to say hello, and sitting next to me was the most incredibly handsome man I had ever seen. So I guess while her friend, Rosalind Dauber, did describe uh, Gabriel Horowitz as very attractive— She also said he was tall, had black hair and piercing blue eyes. Um, Oh, yeah. That checks out, okay? Sure. Um, But what doesn't check out is that they did not meet going to school together at UCLA, as has been commonly reported. Um, And that's not the only thing that has been misreported. So back to Marsha's words. FYI, I, I have edited this down for time. Of course. Gabby, that's what his friends called him, seemed like a womanizer, but he was very charming. We began seeing each other. In less than a month, I was living with him. Gabby was flashy, always dressed to the nines in body-hugging suits. He seemed to have plenty of money. He slept all day and went nightclubbing all night. I found his lifestyle very glamorous and allowed myself to get swept along by it. Gabby played backgammon for a living. I'd never even heard of the game before I met him, but Gabby took great pains to teach it to me. He instructed me not only the basic rules, but in theory and strategy as well. I soon learned that backgammon was a real hot pastime with the rich. The craze was in its infancy when Gabby and I first met. Two years later, when I started law school, it had become a full tilt mania. So, to confirm, we know that she started law school in 1976 after graduating with her poli-sci degree from UCLA. So that would suggest that they met in 1974. But when did they actually get married? Back to the book. Now, for this time, I'm just going to summarize this. This is not in her words. This is my summary. Of course. So... Bars and clubs everywhere at that time had at least one or two backgammon tables. Some places devoted themselves exclusively to backgammon. Uh, The most popular in L.A. was a place called Pips, which catered to the very rich and famous. Marcia would go along with Gabby and sit and study as he would try and get a game going. If he had no luck, he'd move on to a private club called the Cavendish, where he never had trouble finding a game. In fact, he often made a lot of money there. The tabloids later portrayed Gabby as a chronic cheater, but Marcia says she never personally saw him cheat. At the beginning of the relationship, she says she loved doing the clubs with Gabby, but looking back on it, she says that she couldn't really see her life being normal because it was obviously a very weird existence, he would play all night, then they'd hit a 24-hour diner, by the time they got home it would be 4 in the morning, they'd be too keyed up to sleep, so they'd watch TV until at least 5 or 6 a.m., and then of course would sleep until 1 or 2 in the afternoon. So after the first year, she says the charm of the nightclub circuit was kind of wearing thin with her, she felt isolated, she was depending upon him almost solely for love and companionship, which she said wouldn't have been so bad if they weren't fighting all the time. Sometimes the conflicts between them were subtle. He'd get sarcastic over something as small as her not making dinner the way he liked, she, he liked it. But that was usually a pretext for a deeper irritation he was feeling, like the fact that she would come home from a dance class later than she was supposed to. Uh, he apparently couldn't stand not knowing where she was at all times. He'd say he was afraid that whenever she wasn't with him, he she was seeing other men. So that sounds
3: not, not great.
4: So when she started law school, she says she grabbed onto it like a drowning woman clinging to a life jacket. It was to become her salvation. She says law school took a lot more effort than her undergraduate work, so she had to study and memorize and actually attend her classes. And the deeper she got into law, the more she withdrew from Gabby. And now back to quoting Marsha directly. Even now, I'm hard put to understand, excuse me, I'm hard put to explain why I married him. But in its own weird way, getting married made sense at the time. Gabby needed a green card, and he'd get one if he married me. I agreed on one condition, that no one but the government would ever know about it. He agreed. And that's how we got married. The first time. It was just a formality. A year or so passed, and Gabby started to talk about doing it properly. The idea of a wedding seemed to make him happy, so I gave in. On November 6th, 1976, we were married again. So, this is proof! This is proof that I was right, that there was something fishy going on regarding the years and the dates. They were married in 1976, as popularly reported, but that was a year after they were technically already legally married. So while I have the answer that I was seeking and I'm very proud of myself, that is not where we stop on this show. We go where the research takes us. And let me tell you a little something there was more. Marsha goes on to explain that when Gabby had out-of-town tournaments, she would bring her law books and study while he played. She said that on the surface, everything seemed to be fine, but that the marriage was, quote, hollow at the core. She says they began to live separate lives. She got a job as an associate lawyer with the firm she'd been clerking for, and she soon realized that her days with Gabby were numbered. She was really torn about whether she wanted to leave him. She knew that she needed to just pick up and go, but she was racked with sure. guilt about it. Her career was starting to take off, just as his career. Fortunes from gambling were starting to dwindle. Mm-hmm. The backgammon mania was subsiding, and it was becoming clear that gambling wasn't going to provide him with an identity or a living for very much longer. Um, this is all he apparently had ever done was was be a backgammon pro. Um, and this quote was also harsh but true. He was a teacher at best, a hustler at worst. And I was like, well, oh, I get it. Ooh. So she says that Gabby was depressed and needed professional help. As it so happened, one of Gabby's star pupils... Um, Because he would get hired by people to teach them backgammon. Of course. Like was Brad big-
3: Pitt in Ocean's Eleven.
4: Exactly. Yes. Um. So this one-star pupil was big into Scientology. His name was Bruce Roman uh, or Roman. I think Roman. And Marcia says that he was one of the few genuinely good guys that she had met during the backgammon circuit years. Bruce and Gabby had become close friends. And at Marcia's urging, Bruce suggested to Gabby that he look into Scientology. At first, Gabby was reluctant, but he ultimately agreed to enroll in a few courses, and Marsha went with him to sign up for the first class. Gabby's spirits did seem to start to improve after only three or four weeks of the classes. But soon, Marsha heard he was getting close to being thrown out. Apparently, he had been hitting on the women in his classes, and they had been making complaints. Gabby was put on notice that if he didn't clean up his act, he would be asked to leave. Mm. Marsha did eventually leave Gabby, and at the time, she was destitute. No money, but in spite of that, she was happy and she felt like she genuinely could make it on her own. She met the man who would become her second husband, Gordon Clark, at the Scientology administrative offices. The Church of Scientology didn't allow romantic liaisons between its officers and members of the public, so if Gordon wanted to stay on the staff there and also keep seeing Marsha, they would have to get married. The problem was she was still legally married to Gabby, but one of Gordon's fellow Scientologists told them how to get a quick divorce in Tijuana. Now, there was these things that were called Tijuana divorces where you could cross the border, get this divorce done very quickly and come back. They have since been outlawed. You can't do these anymore. Huh. Two weeks later, on October 7th, 1980, Gordon and Marsha got married in a friend's apartment. The Scientology minister who married them was Bruce Roman, who I will remind you was friends with Gabby, and apparently remained friends with Gabby. Four or five months after Marcia left Gabby, she says she was driving through Beverly Hills when she saw him walking somewhere. She said his expression was sad. She heard that he had gotten into a fight with someone who accused him of cheating at Backgammon and that he had been punched in the face. It was the first time she had heard of a Backgammon fight ending in real violence. She didn't hear anything about Gabby for another seven years after that, until one morning she saw an article in the LA Times A man named Gabriel Horowitz had suffered a gunshot wound to the head. Marcia sat stunned, reading and reading the lines of print over and over again, not quite comprehending. Gabriel Horowitz? Her Gabby? I guess it had to be. Marcia asked a detective that she was friendly with to check it out for her, and a few days later, he reported back. Gabby had been visiting Bruce Roman, and the two of them were looking at guns as they were both collectors. The gun that Bruce was holding went off, and the wild shot found its way into Gabby's head. It had been a freak accident. The shot had ricocheted off the ceiling and hit Gabby on the rebound, leaving him paralyzed. I scoured, scoured, I mean, a lot of time, trying to find what happened to him after that. Is is he still alive? There is nothing. Truly, truly. The only thing that I could find is that he allegedly moved back to Israel and kind of went off the grid. That's all I could find. Nothing else, no other information. That and the fact that five months into the O.J. Simpson trial, it was Gabby's mother, Clara, who was the one that sold the topless photos of Marsha to the National Enquirer. Oh, fuck right off. Photo scandal, side note. Marsha has apparently said that she was bothered far more on a professional level about the photos being published than on a personal level. Gabby's mom, Clara, claimed that she didn't think it was that big a deal because the photos were taken on a topless beach in Europe with Gabby, her husband at the time, and she didn't think that it would matter. So I guess what I would say to that is, if you didn't think they were a big deal, then why would you sell them to a major tabloid? And what I want to tell you is, I actually found an answer to that question. According to a 2016 interview with Marsha Clark, she learned that a private eye, hoping to curry favor with the Dream Team, also known as O.J. Simpson's defense team at the time, had tracked down Gabby's mother in Israel and put her in touch with the National Enquirer. The photo Ah. in question was taken in 1979. It showed Marsha topless on a St. Tropez beach with her then-husband, Gabby. In the print edition, her breasts were censored with a black bar, and just as it is shown on the FX series, The People versus O.J. Simpson, Judge Lance Ito did dismiss court that day. Marsha has said about that day, quote, I overestimated my own strength. No sooner had I taken my scene at the council table, I felt the tears welling up in my eyes. Lance must have caught my distress because in a singular act of compassion, he quickly managed to recess court for the day. And even though the jury allegedly never saw the photos as they were sequestered, um, there was also some brutal fake photos of a battered Nicole Brown Simpson that had also been printed in the Inquirer inquirer around that time. Mm -hmm. Many do feel that this did do damage to Marsha's reputation at the time, which, of course, we will get into later. So, Marsha was married to her second husband, Gordon Clark, At the time, she was 27 and Gordon was 22. Friend Rosalind Dauber says, Gordon was also a very good-looking guy. He was much sweeter and more nurturing than her first husband. He's younger, but he's not a stupid person. I always thought they were pretty compatible. He was definitely still in college, and she was working, and I think that made him uncomfortable. He wanted to get out of school and make money. He didn't seem babyish. I think compared to her first husband, he was more mature as a person. Okay. So interesting. Now, there is something that I did not personally know about Marsha Clark's story that I think is very important to mention um, because it is the reason she decided to become a lawyer in the first place. And I'm going to get into that now. At age 17, she and a group of girlfriends made a trip to Eilat, Israel, where they stayed at a resort. The girls were all out at a restaurant when two male waiters started to hit on Marsha and one of her friends. One asked her out. The other asked one of her friends out. Marsha said no. She said she didn't like his vibe. Her gut was screaming at her. She says she was feeling tired, and the others were going to go out to a cafe, so she decided to go back to the hut where she was staying alone and lay down for a nap. When she woke up from that nap, the waiter who had been hitting on her was sitting on her bed. Marsha... Oh, God. Yeah. Marsha says the man was much older than her, around 27. I will remind you, Marsha was 17 at the time. Oh. She says he seemed quite relaxed, um, despite having broken into her room. She didn't know how he got in at first, but it turns out he had a master key. He said to Marsha, I'd just like to watch you sleep. Oh, It -mm. was 7 p.m., so still relatively early in the evening. Marsha was obviously very scared, but he continued saying that he just wanted to make sure she was okay. He was just checking on her. And she agreed to go go with him to the cafe where the rest of her friends were. She, sure. He was being funny and charming, and when they got there and they were all together, everybody started to seem to be having a good time. She said he seemed totally harmless, but that she did let her gut instincts be overridden. When they were done at the cafe, he said he would walk her back, but she didn't want him to, so they sat outside and talked. But the wind was very dry and hot. It's something that they call – excuse my pronunciation – Homsen in Israel? Homsen comes from the Arabic word for 50 because these dry, sand-filled windstorms blow sporadically in Egypt over a 50-day period in spring. The term is Mm. also used in Israel, Palestine, and Jordan, where it blows both during spring and autumn. When the storm passes over an area, it lasts for several hours and carries great quantities of sand and dust from the deserts, with speeds up to 140 kilometers per hour— or 87 miles per hour, and the humidity in that area will drop below 5%. Even in the wintertime, the temperatures will rise above 45 Celsius, or 113 Fahrenheit, due to these storms. Wow. So this is what's going on in this moment. So she doesn't want him to walk her back. So she's kind of trying to kill time. She's just chatting with him. But the winds, she said, are like screaming. Like it's so loud. I mean, again, 87 miles per hour. Winds. Yeah. She said they're they're Ugh. like, they're bellowing at each other, trying to hear each other, but you can't because the winds are so loud. And at some point he said, why don't you come to my room? I'll play you some music. I feel like a big brother to you. I'll teach you fun things to do around here. And Marcia says, quote, the idiot I was, I went. Now I want to take a quick moment and say, Marcia was not an idiot. Uh, first of all, she was 17. Second of yep. all, he groomed her that day. He did something extremely creepy, but then he didn't follow through with it in the moment and went out with her and her friends and and gained her trust. So going to stop you right there, Marsha. Don't like you talking about my friend that way. You're not you're not an idiot. Not an idiot. Mm -hmm. They got to his room, listened to music. And when it was still early ish, Marsha went to leave. She headed for the door and he grabbed her saying, you're not going anywhere. He sucker punched her and threw her on the bed. Marcia says she screamed and screamed, and he just laughed and laughed, saying, no one can hear you. And he was right. No one could. She has described the rape that ensued as being very violent. Her, cor- her clothes were torn. She was badly bruised and hurt. But it wasn't visible enough that people would notice at first glance. But more than anything, she said she felt ashamed for years and never told anyone. After the rape, he wanted to walk her back to her room, but she pushed him aside. By then, other people were walking back to their huts for the night. They could see him, but he just melted away. And she says, and I quote, And I just walked to a far end of the beach and thought, this is it. I can't live with this. And I walked into the ocean. It's really calm, that ocean. It's very warm. It's almost like a lake. I got all the way up to just, she indicated, just below her nose, because I was going to kill myself. I felt so worthless. And then I got mad. All I could feel was anger, which probably saved me. The rape was what propelled Marsha away from her original dream of becoming an actress into pursuing law. After attending UCLA, where she majored in political science, as we know, she studied at Southwestern School of Law, as we also know, I've also mentioned. Um, She graduated from her law school in 1979 and decided to specialize in criminal law. She joined the Los Angeles firm of Brody and Price as a junior attorney, but once she started representing violent criminals, it became a different story for her as she soon found herself uh, at a personal kind of crossroads. The turning point was her involvement in the defense of a man named James Holiday. He was accused of fatally stabbing a woman that he had lured into his car. Marsha was so disturbed by the case, she didn't feel like she was even going to be able to finish writing the, the legal brief for him. But she did complete the work, and she won the case because she was a damn good lawyer. The case was thrown out of court for lack of evidence, and James Holiday walked. But after that, she went to her boss and said she just couldn't do this. It just didn't feel right to her, and she was advised to consider a career change. So she took this recommendation, and in 1981, the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office hired her. Marcia said she realized that what she really wanted to do was take care of the victims, and she didn't want to defend um, the criminals any longer. When asked of her time as a criminal defense lawyer, of the people you defended, how many did you believe were innocent? Her response? None of them. I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. She never told anyone about her rape, including her first husband. She said, I blocked it for years. I had nightmares about it, but that's all. The incident came flooding back to her when she was working as a prosecutor and met a young woman who had also been assaulted. Marcia says, "She told me her story and literally within 10 minutes of her leaving, I got violently ill, violently. It was really weird. Scientology, they're right about that. They say that negative emotion and rekindling old negative memories can make you feel ill, physically ill, and it did. They say release the chain, release the charge, confront it and deal with it. And I had to go home within an hour. I had a fever of 102." It was around 1981, and my then-husband said, okay, so what just happened? And I wound up telling him. Throughout the O.J. Simpson trial, the assault remained her secret. And I just want to take a moment to say, thank God. Uh, Sexual assault is nothing for anyone to be ashamed of at all, Um, and I am not implying that in any way, but the way that the media came for Marsha Clark during that trial was so unrelenting. They picked apart every detail about this woman that they could and i am glad that they did not have this as further ammunition in some way because i am certain that that publications would have used it and oh, 100%. if she personally was not at a place in her own journey that she felt comfortable talking about that i am very happy to hear that it was not public um And it was – she had kept it to herself at that time because I don't think that she had gotten to that place in her journey yet where she felt comfortable talking about it, which, again, is a very obviously private experience. Um, Sure. And – but again, just thank God. Thank God. I mean, again, the things they – went and I'll I'll get into it more later, but we know the things that they went after about her – the color of outfit she was wearing, her hair, the fact that there was a topless photo of her, like, all of these things. Like, I just am so glad that they didn't throw that into the mix anyway because they they basically destroyed her as a human um, over yep. the course of that trial. And I think that that could have put a nail in, in, a, in a coffin yep. in a real way. I do also want to note that Marsha left Scientology in the early 1980s without repercussions. She says,
3: I never got past the very low levels. And that's what she said about that. Wow. Look, coming into this, I didn't know a lot about Marsha Clark, but I am learning so much. This is already so fascinating, and I could not be more Team Marsha if I tried. Trust me. Yes. Uh, But before we go any further, uh, we're going to take a quick break. So grab a drink. Bathroom's on the right. And uh, we'll be right back with more on Marsha Clark on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails.
1: Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time.
3: Before the break, Lauren was reminding us of what a fucking rock star Marsha Clark has always been. Yes. So, uh, where are we headed next? We're going to get into the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office. That's where we're heading.
4: So, as we know, Marsha joined the L.A. District Attorney's Office in 1981. As the new assistant district attorney, she assumed her duties in the Culver City, California courthouse with enthusiasm. She knew that her sympathies laid with the victims of crime, and it only remained for her to prove herself as a prosecutor. Working with another assistant district attorney, Marsha successfully tried several murder suspects over the next four years. These cases established her reputation for thorough preparation and toughness in court. In 1985, she won convictions in a case involving the double murders of a college couple— Michelle Ann Boyd and Brian Harris by four young men, in part, by convincing one of them to testify against his other three friends. DeAndre A. Brown received immunity for testifying against Damon Redmond, Donald Bennett and Stanley Davis. Now, the motive in this case was to steal um, Michelle Ann Boyd and Brian Harris's car for a proposed liquor store robbery in Barstow in order to bail a friend out of jail. Armed with an Uzi submachine gun, the four men put Michelle and Brian in Brian's car, brought them to another location, and executed them. The couple mm. was later found in a secluded area in the Santa Monica, Santa Monica Mountains off Mulholland Drive near the San Diego Freeway. It was, so sorry, it was DeAndre Brown who led detectives to the bodies following his arrest. Stanley Davis and DeAndre Brown, I also, it was definitely Stanley Davis, but I could not get clarification about which of the three, the other three was the second person, Sure, had been arrested a year before in June 1984 for a nearly identical crime. Another UCLA student was kidnapped, his car was stolen, and he was driven to the exact same area and threatened with death, but he was not killed. That student who was not injured in the accident did identify Stanley Davis and whoever the second person was But the identification was not deemed solid enough to prosecute them, which is another thing we've talked about recently on this show, where if they had gotten even a year of jail time, that could have saved the lives of Michelle and Brian. Yep. At trial, DeAndre Brown stuck to his story that Damon Redman was one of four men responsible for the killings. He spoke of how Brian Harris's car was commandeered, with Brian locked in the trunk, and how the two victims were shot at close range in the back of the head. Donald Bennett pled guilty to second-degree murder and was sentenced to 18 years in state prison. Stanley Bernard Davis, who was the alleged trigger man d- doing the actual killings himself, sure, was sentenced to the death penalty in 1989 for these killings. The jury also oh. convicted him of robbery and kidnapping for robbery of the two students, along with grand theft auto and arson—the car was later set on fire— And they did also convict him of the May 27, 1984 kidnapping and robbery of the other male UCLA student. However,
3: update.
4: Hey. In September 2021, his death sentence was commuted to a life sentence without parole. The death sentence imposed, this is a quote, "...the death sentence imposed against this intellectually disabled person over 30 years ago has been corrected with a sentence to life in prison without the possibility of parole." This is Los Angeles County District Attorney George Gascon, who said in a statement that his conviction and death sentence were initially upheld by the California Supreme Court in July 2005. In that opinion, the state court agreed that his conviction for robbing uh, the the second guy, sorry, the, the 1984 case, they thought that that should be vacated because the prosecution prevented evidence of two distinct acts of robbery but didn't choose which of the two it was relying on to prove that the robbery had happened, it's very confusing. Um, They said, we find no basis, however, to set aside the robbery murder special circumstance as to victim void. So basically in that ruling, they were saying the evidence still supported the conviction and the special circumstance. So even though there was a part of the case that they were like, you're right, this was kind of BS, enough of the rest of the charges stayed that they were like, that's not enough for us to overturn the conviction was basically sure. What the district attorney's office noted that his case had been tied up in costly litigation for more than three decades and a petition had been filed on his behalf that included more than 200 exhibits documenting evidence that he met the legal criteria for an intellectual disability. Um, So it's also something that I wanted to mention was Marsha has spoken in interviews that she's not a supporter of the death penalty. I don't think that that was ever necessarily what she would have necessarily wanted i couldn't sure. find her commenting specifically about that case but again um i did want to mention that 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 is what she has said publicly and i also sure. wanted to give the update about the case because i found it another case marcia tackled around this time was foreshadowing to the oj simpson case and it had her face as it had her facing off against defense attorney Robert Shapiro, who, of course, she went head head with in the OJ trial as well. Shapiro ultimately ended up entering a plea bargain for his client, Theodore Pacheco, Pacheco who was an estranged husband accused of storming into his wife's home with a shotgun and killing her friend. Oh. Fellow prosecutor Susan Gruber met Marsha in the mid-80s and recalled working downtown with Marsha. Quote, the reason I met her was because of her knowledge of case law. I was in trial and nobody has a mind like Marsha. She has a fabulous, phenomenal memory of case law, citations, and case names. I thought that was a really glowing review. Oh. Marcia and not
3: was, a physical description.
4: Isn't so that I, nice? So Thanks, it's a thank nice you, change. Susan. Thank you, Susan. Yeah. She understood the assignment. Oh, um, thank you. Yep. Marsha was among a group of female prosecutors who all became friends during the 1980s, including Lynn Reed Barragona, Susan Gruber, and Pam Bozanich. Gruber and Barragona are still close to Marsha Clark, but Bozanich, who was on the team that tried li- trialed, who was on the team that tried Lyle and Eric Menendez for the murder of their parents, did have a falling out with Marsha. Bozanich, according to Deputy District Attorney Sterling Norris, said that she felt Marcia had been too critical of how she handled the Menendez case. Sure. Marcia and Bosnich were the only two women to make it to Special Trials, which is a unit of fewer than a dozen lawyers. It's now called Major Crimes, and that unit is reserved for the highest profile, most complicated cases, which are usually, of course, homicides. Sure. Susan Gruber has said, You really have to want to be in that unit. It is completely all-encompassing. The cases that you do are overwhelming in terms of workload. As a female prosecutor and mother, a lot of people, maybe they don't want that burden. But Marsha loved the obstacles. Loved the obstacles. I like that she repeated herself. One woman who faced off against Marsha Clark, defense attorney Madeline Koppel, said she found Marsha to be thorough, very thorough, but that she found herself under the Marsha Clark steamroller once during a trial when Koppel couldn't keep back tears during emotional testimony about her client, and Marsha demanded that the judge bar her from crying. That was kind of a low blow, Koppel said. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> but listen, and I listen, and but Marsha also admits later that she, you know, when she was driven to tears in a in a in the trial, you know, that it was like, thank God you know, you know, had sure. compassion for her. So I feel like, you know, she's learned some things. But I also just kind of love that she was being a badass at the time. And she was just like, there's no crying in baseball. Like, I love that yeah. she, you know. Yeah, um, I like that. Because it also, by the way, it wasn't crying about something that was an attack on her. It was just that she was moved by testimony is the point. So I think that that was the difference sure. for, for Marsha, where it was like, you got to let's keep it, her it personal. personal game. Game. If it's a personal her. attack, yeah, yeah. different story. But sure. That's just my opinion. Now. Men who have observed Marsha, her boss's colleagues, and opponents, have widely varied in their views of her. Sterling Norris, who I've mentioned already, who is a generation older, mostly her boss, and was briefly her employee, found Marsha to be, quote, enthusiastic but inexperienced. And we're going to get into how that's just bullshit shortly. Okay. John Lynch, who was her boss for years, saw Better than most, her complications. Okay, get into that too. Former prosecutor Harvey Giss may be the originator and best salesman of the tough cookie image Marsha was known for. They met on Marsha's first big case in which she was his second chair. The defendant was James Hawkins, a man Giss described as a counterfeit folk hero. She and Giss won the murder conviction after six months of jury selection and then 13 wow. months of trial. They oh, ate lunch wow. yeah, they ate lunch together every day, but Giss says he never knew a thing about Marcia's personal life. The rumors about them as a couple nonetheless flew. He said, "I'd say I don't think there's a way medical science is found for
3: a barracuda and a shark to mate, which I almost find charming. I don't know. I mean, at least he gave himself a, yeah, not glowing, animal, likeness. You know, yeah. And so, then, listen, hmm. I will. I will also say that I did make a joke about her and Christopher
4: Darden in my opening there, and and I think that part of the reason I'm so invested in Marcia Clark and Christopher Darden and will, will they, were they, won't they, um, was was mostly because of the. The the Sarah Paulson, Sterling K. Brown uh, portrayals of them and that that's that's my own thing. Um, But I do want to say, again, this is another moment where I'm like, what it must be to be a professional doing their job. But because you are a woman and and you are young, um, you are automatically being accused of having affairs with your coworkers. And I know that that could happen in any profession, but I just feel like it's like. These are people, these are lawyers. And I know people can say, well, yeah. lawyers, whatever. And it's like, but these are district attorney lawyers. Like, yeah. they're working for the, the city or the state. You know what I'm saying? Like, anyway. Um, now, Giss made it clear that he, that he found stories about a softer version of Marsha um, where people talked about her empathy for victims to be, quote, horse manure. He said she had a gutter mouth and a salty sense of humor. She would drink and smoke with detectives. He left out that she drank Glenlivet, not Rolling Rock beers, and that her cigarettes were Dunhills. I thought that was like a wonderfully written (laughs) quote. Um, Marsha was never profiled uh, in like a magazine or newspaper profile before the O.J. Simpson case. And in the early going, she clung to that image that Gis had given her. Um, she preferred that image more so than she was a flirt who was having affairs and whatnot. She didn't hate the fact that she was being portrayed to be kind of like a a tomboy kind of badass, which I get. I would have preferred that to the alternative as well. Of course. But Marsha did once say to a friend, if they only talk to Harvey about me, they'll think I eat nails for breakfast. Which of course brings me to a Harvey Gist side note. Marsha’s success quickly came to the attention of the district attorney's office, as we know, and in 1985, she got a career boost when she was assigned to work with veteran Los Angeles prosecutor Harvey Giss on the aforementioned James Hawkins murders case. James Hawkins was an African-American who worked at his father's grocery store in Watts, and he had shot a street gang member. Hawkins said that he intervened to stop the gangster from harassing a woman and her five children. The shooting, he claimed, was accidental. This turned him, as I mentioned earlier or alluded to, into an overnight folk hero. The media and community leaders praised him for fighting back against crime, but investigators believed that he had simply shot a rival gang member. So in 1987, in part because of Marcia's skillful presentation of gun ballistics evidence, she and Giss did win the conviction on not one, but two charges of murder. Her success against Hawkins' top-notch defense team, headed by Los Angeles attorney Barry Levin, did not go unnoticed. Quote, She was born to be a trial prosecutor, Levin said. She's tenacious, she's ethical, she's highly competent, she's prepared. And I love that she was getting such a glowing review from a person on the other side. Yeah. You know, when there's so many people on her side that will continue to be so hard on her. Mm. But we'll get to that later. Because for now,
3: we're in the Giss side note. And there's more about Harvey Giss. Oh, Harvey. <laughs> I just assume.
4: <laughs> uh huh. Giss started off his career as a law clerk for the Arizona Supreme Court after graduating from UCLA Law School in 1964. He spent his time there drafting appellate decisions for the court, thereby gaining research and writing skills. Giss went on to have a successful career as a deputy district attorney for Los Angeles for over the next 30 years before becoming a superior court judge. One of the most notorious cases he worked on was the 1980 Bob's Big Boy quadruple murder case. This case involved defendants Carlitha Stewart, Franklin Freeman Jr., and Richard Sanders. The two males forced nine employees and two customers into a freezer at a Bob's Big Boy restaurant. The males opened fire with two shotguns and four people were killed and another five were wounded. Carlitha Stewart had been fired from a Bob's Big Boy restaurant after making false injury claims and then prompted her friends to perform this heinous act. Gist noted, I faced a total of nine defense attorneys throughout the trial and we fought each and every day. Detectives worked around the clock in order to ensure these murderers were convicted. Over my career, I've tried many brutal cases since the Bob's Big Boy case. You become jaded and numb. You have to shut it out as best as possible. Many people believe that Giss should have been the prosecutor in the O.J. Simpson trial. Uh, Mark Garagos stated in a book that he wrote, if you ask a group of LA attorneys who was the best prosecutor they ever saw in front of a jury, a number of them would probably say Harvey Giss. Interesting. But he was also kind of known to be Marsha's mentor. That was something that, again, like she worked, she was in his second chair, so... It also makes sense because she had so much experience by the time the O.J. Simpson trial happened that it would make sense that she would be given that opportunity, but more on that later. Sure. Giss was also the assistant district attorney of the first U.S. murder prosecution for oleander poisoning. David Wayne Sconce was accused of using oleander poisoning against Timothy R. Waters, a rival mortician. The charges were eventually dropped by the Ventura Superior Court when they were unsuccessful in finding traces of the poisoning in The Deceased. The idea that there was two rival morticians trying to poison each other, like jockeying to be top mortician, I don't know. There's a show there. It feels like there's, absolutely. It feels like that movie, the, con- what? what's the, remember the movie with, was like the two magicians, Hugh Jackman was one of them, I think. Oh. The Prestige. Prestige. I want yeah. that. It's The Prestige, but morticians.
3: <laughs>
4: yeah. Not magicians, yeah. morticians. Oh, yeah, I like that. Gis's advice for some young assistant detur- district attorneys is simple. You cannot help or change what you are exposed to while on the job. Some people do horrible things, and the best thing you can do is shut it out and serve justice. Fellow prosecutors voted him Los Angeles Prosecutor of the Year in 1989 and California State Prosecutor of the Year in 1990. He went on to become a Superior Court judge, as I mentioned, until retiring in July of 2014 but he was not without a little bit of controversy
3: that that right there is is always always my favorite lauren ash voice always <laughs> i just get so excited when i find something a little scandalous you know it it makes me so happy like I I want to see the character, the physical character that goes with that. Oh, but wait. Like it's, it's, I just envision you as like this old man in like court in Mississippi, you know, like it's so beautiful to me. Your honor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, but wait. I like it kills me every time. Well, listen, I got the mustache yeah. for it. You do.
4: <laughs> you do. In July 2010, Harvey Giss made a remark referencing the Ku Klux Klan in a case oh. involving two black defendants. There this occurred is. during an off-the-record discussion with attorneys about a possible plea agreement in the case according to the State Commission on Judicial Performance. And I know what you're thinking. The State Commission on Judicial Performance. Well, Lauren, did you read the the official documents? Of course I did. I have it printed out in front of me. Don't fuck with her. She knows what she's doing. Thank you. The Commission on Judicial Performance has publicly admonished Judge Harvey Giss of the Los Angeles County Superior Court. After a criminal case was transferred to Judge Giss for trial in July 2010, the prosecutor and counsel for the co-defendants were in the judge's courtroom discussing off the record the prospects for a plea agreement. According to the judge, he perceived the counsel wished him to intercede and explain the potential benefits of the plea offer to the defendants, which he did not believe he could do. So, Judge Giss made a remark to the effect that he guessed the only thing that would make the defendants plead was for the judge to come out in a white sheet and a pointy white hat, which the judge indicated he would not do. His remark referenced the Ku Klux Klan and the fact that both defendants were African American. When the defense requested that the judge recuse from the case, the judge conceded his remark was, quote, a bad statement, but also remarked, quote, people don't have a sense of humor anymore, The judge's comment regarding the Ku Klux Klan eventually resulted in the judge's recusal from the case. Mm. Yeah. Um, They went on, of course, to explain why this was inappropriate. I don't think I need to explain that. I think we can all pretty much understand that it is uh, not the move. Harvey. So, obviously, Harvey Gist created this image of Marsha Clark, hard drinker, smoker, kind of one of the boys, But some weren't buying it. And one of them was John Lynch, who I did mention briefly earlier. He supervised Marsha for four years. He says, quote, Marsha was in a business coming up that was dominated clearly by men. She was one of those who she was going to do what she needed to do without anybody changing the rules or lowering the basket. I think she may have overcompensated to show that she could be as tough as anyone else. Part of that you see when Marsha gets caught between the little girl giggle finger-in-the-cheek G-folks, and Marsha the shark. I don't find the middle range with her. She's either coquettish or full attack. And even though I felt like maybe he was trying to defend her in some way, I just want to remind everyone that I don't think any male lawyer has ever been accused of having a, quote, little boy giggle or a finger-in-the-cheek G-folks attitude, and I am yeah. absolutely certain that no male lawyer since the dawn of time has ever been described as coquettish, and I hate it?
3: Oh, it's, it's just pure trash. Pure trash. Pure trash. Yeah. Because I also just want to say very quickly.
4: If anyone has watched any legal proceedings, which I'm going to say, if you've been listening to this show, you've probably seen a little on your court TVs or your or your your, your murder docs. It's acting. It makes sense that Marcia wanted to be an actor and became a trial lawyer because there's a part of it that's sure. performance. You're being compelling. It's the whole thing. I've seen just as many male actors really turn it on, or excuse me, male lawyers turn it on when they're addressing the court, like to suggest in some way that she was any different in the in her tones or the way that she addressed the court than any male lawyer. In my opinion, is uh, offensive to our intelligence.
3: Yes. So and honestly, how much further would we be as a society if decades ago we just accepted? men women all people can yep. just do the same same jobs
4: yeah because at the end of the day it was that she was damn good and it intimidated them and that's what the, I will believe till till the end of time Ugh. and unfortunately i also think there is a world in which they threw her to the wolves a little bit with that case because yes it it did destroy her so anyway not well listen it didn't and we're going to get to that too she was a phoenix but
3: still <laughs> Thank you for that.
4: So, as Marsha's re- reputation continued to grow, not simply because she won cases, it was because of how she won them. She was innovative. She was daring. And the Rebecca, Sh- Rebecca Schaefer murder case was a great example of that.
2: <laughs>
3: the fact that I don't have a soundboard.
4: On July 18th, 1989, 19-year-old fan Robert John Bardo shot and killed Schaefer at her home in West Hollywood. At the time of her death, Bardo had been stalking her for three years. Mm. He had previously been obsessed with child peace activist Samantha Smith, who died in a plane crash in 1985. He then wrote numerous letters, letters to Rebecca Schaefer, one of which she did answer. As is not abnormal, especially in the 80s, sure, actors would respond to fan mail. In 1987, he traveled to Los Angeles hoping to meet with Schaefer on the set of My Sister Sam, the show that she was on at the time, but right. Warner Brothers' security turned him away. He returned a month later armed with a knife, but security guards again prevented him from gaining access to the lot. He returned, to his, he returned to his native Tucson, Arizona, and lost focus on Rebecca Schaefer for a while as his obsession shifted towards pop singers Tiffany, Debbie Gibson, and Madonna. But... He watched Rebecca Schaefer in Scenes from the Class Struggle in Beverly Hills in 1989, in which she appeared in bed with another actor. He became enraged. Mm. He was jealous. He decided that Schaefer should be punished for, quote, becoming another Hollywood whore. Mm. He learned about another man, Arthur Richard Jackson, who had stalked and stabbed actress Teresa Saldana in 1982. He learned that Jackson had used a private investigator to get Saldana's home address. So Bardo paid a detective agency in Tucson $250 to find Rebecca Schaefer's home address in California using DMV, or the Department of Motor Vehicles, records. In the meantime, his brother helped him buy a handgun. Because I'll remind you, he was only 19 at the time, and I don't know what the, the laws were, but his brother helped him. So... Bardo traveled to Los Angeles a third time and literally roamed the neighborhood where Schaefer was said to be living, just asking people if she lived there. (sighs) Once he was certain that the address was correct, he rang her doorbell. She was preparing for an audition at the time for the movie The Godfather Part 3 and was expecting a script to be delivered, so she answered the door. For some context, pre-internet, and I'm not dating myself, but I've been in some movies back in the day, where... They couldn't email it to you and you probably didn't have a fax machine at home. Most most people didn't, or you know, certainly sure. in the in the eighties. So they literally would have couriers bring you a physical copy of the script to yeah. your home. And then if there was script changes, they'd deliver those papers too. I mean, that's how else are you going to do it, right? Of course. Yeah. So, again, if she was waiting for that script delivery, also, they can't leave it on your doorstep, especially if it's a big movie like that, so you have to physically take sure. it to... She had to answer the door. This is, again, I'm just setting up the tragedy... that uh, ...that happened here. So, Bardo showed her a letter and an autograph that she had previously sent him, and after a short conversation, she asked him not to come back to her home again. He went to a diner nearby, had breakfast, then returned to her apartment an hour later... She answered the door with a quote, cold look on her face, just as Bardo has said. He pulled out his handgun and shot her in the chest at point blank range in the doorway of her apartment building. She fell, according to Bardo, and said only, quote, Why? Schaefer was rushed to the emergency room of Cedar Sinai Medical Center, where she was pronounced dead 30 minutes later. After the slaying, Bardo went back to Arizona, where he was arrested. And this is where Marsha Clark shines. Mm. He had a public defender, and that public defender was fighting Marcia Clark's request for Bardo to be extradited back to California, because he was, of course, in another state. But this public defender accidentally filed pleadings in the wrong Arizona court. So Marcia capitalized on this legal error and sent detectives at the 11th hour physically to take Bardo and physically bring him back to Los Angeles to stand trial. Now, the action was very controversial, but Marsha withstood it because it was supported by law. Los Angeles District Attorney Ira Reiner praised her tactics and that she fully understood the law and that what she was doing was technically legal. Um, And this did lead to a successful prosecution of Bardo in 1991. Um, She used keen preparation. She undermined the testimony of the defense's star witness, who was a psychiatrist, arguing that Bardo shot the actress in a fit of anger. Marsha systematically chipped away at that expert's testimony, proving that the murder had in fact been premeditated. Later, Superior Court Judge Dino Fulgoni publicly complimented Marsha on her trial preparation skills. Bardo's public defender was ambivalent. He refused no plea for the client. He, he didn't enter any plea in protest of the surprise extradition. I don't know how you can just refuse to enter a plea of guilty or not. Like, it was like, guilty or not guilty, we refused to enter a plea. I didn't think that there was a third option.
3: Yeah, I thought it was either one or the other.
4: Yeah. Huh. But he later told the Los Angeles Daily News that Marsha was, quote, very aggressive, but she's always very well prepared and very professional in her presentation. So once again, the other side that she burned hard still had nice things
3: to say about her, which I find fascinating. Oh, I love that. I love anything that's like, oh, she got me. I deserved it.
4: (laughs) I know. I know. (laughs) I like that a lot. By the time of O.J. Simpson's arrest on suspicion of murder in mid-1994, Marsha was highly qualified to bring the state's case against him. At that time, she had a record of 19 successful homicide prosecutions in 10 years. Wow. And when you think of the fact that we know one of those prosecutions, they were in jury selection for six months and then the case lasted 13 She was Uh, potentially pulling double duty at that time. She could have been, I'm I'm assuming. Right. But my point being is 19 prosecutions in 10 years is, I think, pretty impressive. Yes. Um, She had matched abilities with star defense attorneys. And moreover, her ability to win a case in court using highly detailed, complex scientific evidence was proven. She, one of the convictions she won was against the murderer of Christopher Johnson in 1991 And she won on the strength of a single drop of blood found in his car, which established a link to him through DNA comparisons with blood of the victim and blood of the victim's living relatives. This, again, that may not sound like much now, but in 1991, being able to use very early DNA evidence based on one drop of blood and get a conviction based on that, chef's kiss. That's impressive. Oh, yeah. Um, In addition, Marsha was recognized as a victim advocate that went out of her way to forge close ties with victims' families. Early in the case against O.J. Simpson, she endeavored to build public sympathy for Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. She was quoted as saying, we have two young people whose lives stretched out before them with all the possibilities. These two young victims have been murdered in a brutal and horrible way. Now, I found an article written in 1995, and it ran in the Washington Post. So a fairly reputable article publication sure and i just want to read how the article starts oh boy this was in the midst of the oj trial okay everyone is watching the lawyer with the large dark eyes drawn by her black skirt which is pleated and swings a strange thing in a courtroom of papers and suits now i understand that this is commenting on the fact that marsha was a woman which was a, definitely a factor in this O.J. Simpson trial. And if you want to yeah. learn more about that, re-listen to episode 71, Nicole Brown Simpson. But it makes me sad that this is how Marsha's legacy at that time was being documented in the moment. Yeah. The writer goes on to say, men call her a hopeless flirt, a screeching wife, a bad mom, a shrill litigator, but she eludes them all, vividly contradictory, so sexy, so uptight, so serene, so snappish, so tired, so busy. Maybe all that can be safely said is this. Marsha Clark, 41, is a Los Angeles County Deputy District Attorney, the leader of the prosecution team in People versus O.J. Simpson, and the latest in a long line of women we love to misunderstand. I guess what I'm saying is, if I was the editor of the Washington Post in 1995, first of all, it'd be wild that they hired a 12-year-old to do that kind of job. But also, I would have led with the last bit. Just lead with the last bit. Yeah. Because the I... author of this article, whose name I am I'm not mentioning because I am not being kind, was a woman.
3: You're kidding. No. I just... There is not another, there is not an article, and I feel very confident on this. I have not looked it up, but I'm confident that there's not an article written somewhere about describing the eye color of a male lawyer. Never. Never.
4: It's in what she's wearing. And I will, again, I'll get into it more later, but like the, the amount of airtime about what she was wearing and what she looked like, never, ever I don't think—I agree with you. I don't think there's ever been coverage like that to that degree about any male lawyer. No way. No. Are they also calling a male lawyer so sexy, so uptight, so serene, so snappish, so tired, so busy? No. A hopeless flirt? A screeching husband? A bad dad? A shrill litigator? Like, you'd never hear, ever. None of these thoughts would even enter anyone's mind. When you look at a male lawyer, does your brain go, what kind of dad is he? Never. But immediately, no. and this segues perfectly into my next session section, Marsha, of course, was a mother of two during the O.J. Simpson trial, and more specifically, a single mother of two at the time. And mm-hmm. if you don't think that was used against her, buckle up, dear listeners, because trust me, it's about to get bumpy. Mm-hmm. So, Marsha had her two children with her second husband, Gordon. Her first child, her son Kyle, was born in 1990, and her second son, uh, Travis, was born in 1992. She was 37 and 39 at the time of their births, which certainly in present day is not an uncommon age to be having children. But I will remind that she had been married to Gordon for 10 and 12 years, respectively, at those times. So to some, it could have seemed odd that she had, quote, waited so long. This is not my words. I am simply setting the stage. Of course. Some of her friends have said that she waited because she wanted more financial security, but that she always wanted to have children. In 1993, Marsha gave up trial work to take a supervisory job at the law firm. This is pre-OJ. She gave up trial work, which I will remind you, she was fabulous at. Yeah. Her sons were one in three at the time, and she loved being a mother. Friends speculated that it was all connected to the part of her that wanted to be protected and, and loving towards her younger brother. But other things in her life weren't feeling right. It was around this same time, we remember Rosalind Dauber, childhood friend of hers who we talked about earlier in the show, yeah. her house burned down. Dauber was a, foc- a documentary filmmaker who had not been in close touch with, with Marsha at the time, but... Marsha did show up for her when she found out that her house had burned down. She brought her boxes of towels and clothes. She spent many weekends staying with Marsha at her home. Uh, Mm -hmm. They spent a lot of time talking, hanging out, all of the above. And she says of Marsha at the time, quote, Marsha was doing the administrative job. She was really unhappy. She didn't know if it was her job or her marriage or both, and she was in a lot of turmoil. She was really down. She had these young children and a lot of responsibility, and it was really, really hard. I think she had all the normal fears of could she make it alone or not, and what would it be like, and how Gordon would take it, as they were both very attached to the kids. The decision to separate from Gordon was agonizing for Marcia, But the decision for her to go back to trial work... Was very easy. Of course. Dauber says, quote, she felt she had to work full-time anyway. She wasn't getting up in the morning to do something interesting. She was really depressed. She felt it would be better for everybody if she was doing what she liked. She felt like if she was happier in her work, she'd be happier for the kids. And I want to say, hell to the yes. Yes! Absolutely. Now, the details of Marcia and Gordon's divorce, which was filed mere days before Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman were murdered, created a media frenzy within a media frenzy during the time of the O.J. Simpson trial. At one point, Marsha filed a motion asking the court to force Gordon to reinstate support payments that he had unilaterally halved out of nowhere to $500. I believe that was monthly. Now, she was making $96,000 salary the year at the time. And we understand that is a very nice salary but wait a second hold on let's break this down for a second she was making double of her husband a computer programmer absolutely but she had the children far more than half of the time Mm. and in his filings gordon was making it sound as though all she wanted the money for was high heels and hairspray for her newfound celebrity status and then continued to whine about the bad publicity he was getting in his filings, Gordon complained that Leslie Abramson and Gloria Allred appeared on Which Way LA, a radio program, and speculated that I was possibly some kind of child molester and that my motivation must be to hit petitioner, meaning Marcia, with the custody motion in order to get out of my support obligation. Colby Roberts appeared on This Week with David Brinkley and implied strongly that my case was being run by the O.J. Simpson's defense team. So again, he was just really all over the place. He was really kind of trying to use, again, the media frenzy that was happening to his benefit. Aww. Um, he also said that Marcia spent at most one hour a day with the children. He said that she wouldn't let him spend more than Tuesday and Thursday evenings and every other weekend with them. Um, that's also not abnormal in terms of, of those custody deals two nights a sure. week and every other weekend. I've, I mean, that's not ideal, but I, that again, they, this wasn't a full divorce yet. This was, they had just separated. Of course. Uh, they hadn't made the deal yet. Uh, he said they were left with a nanny and starved for affection Uh, The filings made it seem like Marsha was completely savage. He described that one night he said that he wanted the children more, and she told me she would have my ass if I tried to do it. She'd throw me in court as fast as it would make my head spin. Okay. Another night during the trial, in violation of their agreement, he kept the kids overnight. So let's also just keep in mind here. Now he's violated the rules that were set in place. Because keep in mind, the two nights a week and every other weekend, that was court-imposed. Okay, so that wasn't just coming out of nowhere. Right. Um, At 12.25 a.m., the phone rang. It was Marsha who just arrived home. She started yelling at me and asked me what I thought I was doing. She told me I had no right to have the kids overnight. She threatened me that she would get an injunction against me to limit me from seeing our kids. She told me she wished I would die and drop off the face of the earth. Well, again, we all know that that's speculation and there's no proof of that. Of course. Um, Emotions are running high. Now... Marcia did have a nanny, whom she also had to supplement with a babysitter during the Simpson trial. But she did not, her friends insist, give up on the time-consuming monotony of mothering, even during the trial. She was changing diapers during watching The Lion King. She was taking the kids to the zoo, amusement parks, playing with them. She read to them every night. She was reading to them. Uh, her friend Barragonia, who I mentioned earlier, Barragona, excuse me, uh, said, quote, she was reading the rescuers to them last night when I called, and she said one more page. Then she called back and started talking to me about EDTA, a blood preservative at issue at the trial. The weekends she has the kids, she has the kids, she takes care of them. Barragona, perhaps more than most people, saw the Marsha who is hanging on by a thread. And this is where the salary comes into play. It's the same Marsha Clark who had credit card debts and who had to borrow $26,000 from her 401k because she had a medical dental catastrophe happen. It's the Marsha Clark who shopped at Price Club, who had to uh, sometimes only make it to court wearing borrowed suits. There were exclamations when in the divorce filings, she said she had to spend $1,500 on new shoes and suits for the trial. But let's remember, she bought five suits and a stack of pairs of shoes for that much money. And that wouldn't even pay for one of defense attorney Robert Shapiro's Armani suits. So, and also let's keep in mind, she didn't have a choice. She had to show up every day to court and she had to wear clothing and that is not provided by the law firm. So let's just take into account for a quick second here. She is the primary caregiver. She has the children far more than 50% of the time. She has to hire a nanny for when she is physically at work, and if there are other times where she's not available, she has to supplement with a babysitter. She also has a job that is requiring her to have a certain kind of dress. She, again, was borrowing suits half the time because while I think you can probably recycle them every so often, she was under so much scrutiny for what she looked like, she was being told, you have to start wearing pastel colors. Your skirts are too short. You have to wear something longer. She was constantly being given these notes that, well, do you want to lose the trial based on what you look like? You better change it up. Where are you supposed to find that money? And I know $96,000 is a great salary. But also, when you pay tax and when you think about all of that and you think about the fact that he's not really kicking in that much money, that money's going to go. It just oh, is. yeah. Right? And again... <laughs> If you have any questions about how badly Marsha Clark was scrutinized for her appearance during the O.J. Simpson trial, I encourage you to simply Google the words Marsha Clark perm. That's it. She was getting so noted about how she looked too harsh. She looked too this. She looked too that. They were like, you've got to soften your appearance. You have to look more feminine. You have to change your hair. She got this perm. It didn't turn out the way she wanted. And then that just made things even worse. This woman, I'm telling you, the fact that she was being you know, strung up. Again, and also this medical dental catastrophe sounds like it was something rather involved, which I will also remind, yes. she's never talked about any of this. She's never played the sympathy card for, for for any of that or money during that time. It's her friends coming forward saying, you guys don't understand. She was in the hole. She, was, she had no money. So I just resent the fact that he was trying to make it sound like she was a bad mother and all of the above and that she was trying to yeah. take this money from him when it's like, She's the one juggling all these things while also every camera in North America and worldwide was pointed at her every day. And every day she was being given different notes about what she needed to specifically change about herself because she didn't want to be responsible for losing the case because of what she physically looked like. I mean, that's a level of pressure that I can't even begin to understand. When you are so competent at your job, but you're literally being told you could lose this because of how you're dressed and what you look like. Right? Yeah. That's gross. So, with that being said, the O.J. Simpson trial earned Marsha mixed reviews. At first, legal analysts generally approved of the prosecution's strategy, although sometimes not of Marsha's tactics. In the long, frustrating case, Marsha readily held her own against Simpson's celebrated defense team in their many biting exchanges. Even from the beginning, Marsha sparred with Robert Shapiro, as each warned the other not to try to direct her or his case. But as the weeks wore on, she did not always come out favorably in the eyes of Judge Lance Ito, who sometimes admonished her for inappropriate remarks in court. Marsha and lead defense attorney Johnny Cochran battled passionately over the admissibility of certain evidence, and it was with attorney F. Lee Bailey and Barry Sheck that she fought most bitterly. In court, she compared Bailey to a bizarre character out of the novel Alice in Wonderland, And after a question from Sheck, she exploded. There is no lawyer with half a brain with an IQ above five who would not have known an answer, who have not have known that such a question was improper.
3: I don't give a shit. I love her. I love her style. Oh, Oh, yeah.
4: Yeah. (laughs) Given the extraordinary attention paid to this trial, it was inevitable that she would, of course, come under some scrutiny, which, again, we were just talking about. Um, But it was when she changed her looks, I know I just talked about this, I got ahead of myself, but I'm going to go over my notes again anyway, um, the criticism got worse. So she was criticized for what she looked like at the beginning, but then she changed to try and make it better and it just got worse. She took the advice of jury specialists who are consultants that advise attorneys on the subtleties of body language, clothing, and speech, and they recommended that she needed to become more appealing to jurors. And the way she could do that was by softening her image. Feminist critics at the time sympathized with her, but called the need to change her appearance offensive, obviously. Uh, Susan Estrich, who is a University of Southern California law professor, told the Boston Globe, this woman is in the business of prosecuting murderers, and the notion that she has to do it wearing pink is a stunning indictment of how far we've come in terms of equal rights. She's not going to a tea party, observed Gloria Allred, president of the Women's Equal Rights Legal Defense and Education Fund. Marsha also became the focus of discussion... Obviously, about working mothers because of what Gordon, her ex-husband, was pulling at the time as he went on to sue for custody of the two children um, because, of course, he claimed that she was not spending any time with them. One journalist wrote the following account about Marsha during the OJ trial. This was written at the time. Watched in court, Clark seems made of adrenaline. Her hands are frantic. She hits the lectern more than anyone else. Her voice can be sober and hard to hear sometimes, but it all too often ranges into sarcasm. She objects at times when sitting back might look more generous. Her face betrays every vibration of anger or frustration. About her only restrained cross-examinations were her treatment a month ago of Simpson's daughter and mother. Sometimes it seems that her only concession to the thespian arts is her sugary camaraderie with Johnny Cochran Jr., or the fulsome jocularity she uses with co-counsel Christopher Darden. She's often whispering in Darden's ear, one eye watching the audience watching her. It leaves her looking peacockish for all his preening. It's a mistake Cochrane never makes. And the jury, lawyers say, sees all of this. I cannot believe that we were talking about a case, which again, revisit episode 71, Nicole Brown Simpson. There was so much Damning scientific physical evidence. Yep. Okay, of a man brutally murdering a woman and another man. Yep. And this is what's being written about. This is the amount of nuance and intricacy that that was being written about the prosecution lawyer.
3: Yeah. I also. Uh, I mean, it was a while ago, but you can't tell me that Johnny Cochran wasn't a peacock preening his feathers at everybody because that's what he did. His closing argument was such fucking fluff. Yes. Give me a fucking break. Yes. I mean,
4: anyway. Focus groups conducted by the prosecution before the OJ trial showed just what Marsha to this day is up against. Um, they said that people who were mostly white were predisposed to believing that Simpson was guilty at the time. Marsha was seen by them as being capable and tough and who would stand up to the defense. But at the time, for black people who were predisposed to believe Simpson was innocent, Clark was seen as attacking him without cause. Marcia is a very bright, determined, headstrong kind of person, said Donald Vinson, the consultant who, conde- who conducted those focus groups. But to a lot of people in this country who feel that O.J. is being victimized by the white establishment and the court system, Marsha, in that sense, could not have been a better candidate for prosecuting him to complete their perspective. She was absolutely cast perfectly, if that's what you want to believe. I thought that was a really interesting perspective to include, because it does make it seem like they went into this knowing that it was a choice that would piss off the black jurors potentially and turn them sure. off of her sure. but would align with the white jurors it's like they were really hoping to have a white uh, uh, as as much of a white jury as possible right and i'm not saying that any of this is correct or incorrect for the record i'm just saying what their mindset seems to have been at the time um The fact that they even do focus groups about, like, what the lawyers look like and do you trust them or not and what do you think of them is also just wild to me. But, I mean, they do it for TV shows, so I guess they do it for (laughs) – I guess they do it for lawyers too. Who knew? On July 6th, 1995, after five and a half months, the prosecution rested its case in the O.J. Simpson trial. The numbers were staggering. Marsha and fellow prosecutors had presented 58 witnesses over 92 days of testimony with 488 exhibits at a minimum expense to Los Angeles County of five point six nine million dollars. As expected, defense attorney Cochran immediately filed a motion to have the case dismissed, arguing that the prosecution had failed to prove its case. The motion did fail. If any consensus emerged among legal analysts, it was that the prosecution had presented too much circumstantial evidence, much of which defense attorneys had apparently been able to discredit. Standing by his prosecutors, Los Angeles District Attorney Gil Garcetti told reporters, The mountain, truly the giant mountain of evidence that we have produced in court over these many weeks, points to only one person, and we know who that person is. Esquire magazine named Marcia its Woman of the Year for 1995, and speculation immediately began about whether she would continue her career as a prosecutor or perhaps pursue movie offers. I had not heard that before. I don't know if that, I think that's them being glib, but anyway. In October 1995, O.J. Simpson was acquitted. The jury verdict stunned the prosecution and strained race relations throughout the country. Immediately afterwards, Clark took a leave of absence, Marsha Clark took a leave of absence, and ultimately did resign from the district attorney's office in 1997. To this day, she blames herself for the loss of that case. Uh. Regarding her performance in the O.J. Simpson case, Sterling Norris said, quote, She has the inexperience of feeling she has to attack everything that moves. I think she would have been a good prosecutor in this case if she'd had five more years experience. She's never had a high-profile case, not only in terms of publicity, but in terms of intricacy. She's a prosecutor who has great expectations, but I think she was thrust into this before she was ready. And whether the decisions being made are hers or partly hers, the total thing is a disaster. Now, I just want to break this down for a second here. I want to remind you, she, she won the Rebecca Schaefer case. Yep. Which she won because she was clever, got him extradited based on a technicality, and then tore apart the defense's lead psychiatrist, which is impressive at the the best of times. Yeah. So, already I'm getting my back up here, um, but I can try and remain impartial to a point. Um Obviously, would it have been better if she had more experience? Sure, we can argue that. We can argue that about absolutely anything. Yep. Um, I will remind once again, 19 convictions against accused, kill- against accused killers in 10 years. But there is the speculation that some do believe that Marsha's previous cases, those, those uh, convictions she got, were easier than the OJ case. Some say that the defendants were outcasts, poor, disadvantaged, and vicious people. For example, there was a man who sodomized and killed elderly Asian women. That could be viewed as an easy case to prosecute. There were the two men who shotgunned two people to death in a black church in South Central Los Angeles. Again, that feels a little open and shut. Sure. But in all of these cases, the hallmarks of a Marsha Clark prosecution, running on five hours of sleep, having hands-on knowledge... Uh, her friend Barragona says that Marcia has taken her on searches for murder weapons personally in shrubbery. And more than anything, Marcia Clark's preparation that bordered on the maniacal was what brought her the convictions. And I think that trying to suggest that this loss in the OJ trial was her fault, when we know how many different major factors were at play at the time, the fact that it was such a media disaster, the fact that there was so much that was bungled by the police, the fact that the judge was married to someone who worked in the police. I know. There was a lot of factors here and I think to suggest that the case was solely lost because of Marsha Clark is unfair. And I think too, you know, there was some things that she disagreed with with Christopher Darden during that case. I remember and they did them anyway and those things blew up in their face. So again it's like I just love that again in the legacy in the way that this goes down they pin it all on the woman. Yeah? That's the way the story gets told. She was inexperienced. Her other her other convictions were easier cases. I just can't. I think it's so dismissive and it really kind of it just diminishes the work and the level of detail that she brought to everything and, and the fact the fact remains that she was always being credited with being such a good lawyer. It's like the two things can't coexist to me, in my opinion. Right. Few people have more regard for Marsha Clark than Dana Schaefer, who, of course, was Rebecca Schaefer's mother. Rebecca, of course, was the murder case. Uh, yes. With, with Robert John Bardo. To Mrs. Schaefer, Marsha Clark was a gentle, protective advocate who was capable in a crisis. After the trial was over, Marsha Clark sent a letter to the Schaefer's, which Dana Schaefer keeps to this day. One of the paragraphs says, quote, I just want you to know how deeply I sense, empathize, and personally experience your heartbreak at the loss of Rebecca. I never knew her, yet I mourn her and feel a shattering pain as though she'd been my sister.
3: You know, I said it before, I'll say it again, Marsha Clark is a rock star and impressive as hell. Uh, Something else I'll say again, it's time for us to take a break. So hit the can, grab some nugs, I hope you get seven, Uh, and we'll be right back with our final thoughts on the episode that we're talking about that my brain has moved on. We're talking about Marcia Clark. I'm an ass. We'll be back.
0: Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are.
3: back to true crime and cocktails before the break i fucking bungled the (laughs) outro to the break but that's fine i don't do this for a living oh wait i do uh the point is before the break lauren was reminding us of just how frustrating and enraging the entire oj trial was yeah uh but i have a i don't know if we're i don't think we're done talking about the oj trial we got a little bit we got a little bit left. Well, we yeah. we I am done talking about the O.J. trial
4: because if I talk any more about it I'm going to break out into a rash. But I do want to talk about what's <laughs> happened with
3: Marsha since the O.J. trial as yes. I referred to earlier, The Phoenix part of the story. The idea that that's her superhero name.
4: I'm and I know through, that there yeah.
3: are, there are, I'm sure there's a Phoenix, isn't there? I think there's a Dark, dark phoenix. phoenix, yeah, which is Jean Grey or no. I think so. Oh fuck. Don't come for me. I'm not a comic book person. Don't come for me. Listen, it's we're doing the best we can.
4: Yeah. Um, so since the OJ trial, now as I referred to earlier, you know, she did quit because of the OJ trial. She does blame herself solely. She takes it on her shoulders, which again to me is just, you know, breaks my heart. Yeah. Uh but I did want to get into what she's done since the trial. Because again, she's thriving. Marsha has referred to herself as Alice in Wonderland since the OJ trial. The tabloids have dug up neighbors who've said she was a battered woman. They've interviewed people who've never met her, but give glowing reviews of her childhood. And at one point, she was even said to have been friends with Roseanne, even though she had never actually met her. hmm The day that Marsha first started her post-trial life, she says her brain was foggy. There was some form of depression going on for her, but she wasn't aware of it at the time. She was very torn up. Every This is a quote. Everything I believed in was shredded. She saw a therapist in fits and starts over the years. Um, she'd been seeing this therapist occasionally since 1993, but she's never taken medication uh, for her depression. Those first few years after working on thousands of cases, many settled out of court. It was like I had cut off my arm, she says. That's who I was, a prosecutor. I really loved it, but I couldn't do it. I was afraid to do it, even because I, I was afraid I'd go into court and juries would either hate me or be unfairly sympathetic. And that does feel like the worst position to be in, doesn't it? Where you're going to walk in yes. and because you're one of the most famous lawyers, again, in the, the 20th century, the most prolific, you're already making the jury bias and you yeah. don't know which way. Could be because they hate you, could be because they feel sorry for you, and neither of those feel great when you should only be getting judged on doing your job. In 1997, she relocated to Calabasas, California, in search of good schools for her sons. They are both, uh, of course, grown adults now and live in the Bay Area. She's close to them. One works for a legal support firm and the other at a startup. Um, She's had no contact with her former husbands. Uh, She says that she's content being single. As of 2016, I just think I'm at a place in my life where I'm pretty occupied with what I'm doing, and I'm really into it, and that's good for me. And to that I say, that's some hashtag new ash energy, Marsha Clark, and I'm here
3: for it. Oh. (laughs) You and Marsha Clark and a night on the town. I'd like to drink with her.
4: Yeah. That's that's on my bucket list now.
3: Well, legit. Yeah.
4: Only gradually did Marsha rediscover some sort of joie de vivre which for her came through writing. In addition to the memoir that she wrote, which I'll get into more in a second, she's worked on scripts uh, for television uh, and crime novels. She is a self-described workaholic. She also handled court appeals for the indigent. And in a 2016 interview, she said that she has not taken a vacation in years. In that same interview, because I teased it in that synopsis, she said that she hadn't seen Christopher Darden for seven or eight years And did decline to say whether their relationship was ever sexual. Now, for some context here, during, again, during the OJ trial, there was so much speculation about whether the two of them were having an affair. They worked very closely together. This was like a huge part of, again, the million narratives that were going on during that uh, clown turn of uh, media circus that was happening. But she says, We hung out for a few years after the trial. We'd see each other occasionally, do stuff, but then I moved up here and it got harder and harder to get together. Christopher Darden has his own law practice. He didn't re- return calls for that interview. But did he talk in another interview?
2: Oh,
3: he did.
4: Uh-huh. Marcia once told Vulture that she wouldn't say anything regarding the topic so as to refuse, quote, the subject any traction. She lawyered them. Darden was a little more coy, saying, If I were to say I had a relationship with Marsha Clark, people would then say we lost the case because we were more interested in our intimacy than the law and the facts, and that would be an even worse position to be in. I think that's fair? Sure. He then added, I'll wait until Marsha's sitting next to me to talk about it in greater detail.
3: But he didn't. Uh-huh. Uh-huh.
4: Alone at his home, in an interview with E.T., Darden said, quote, I think I've told the truth about it in lawyer land. In lawyer land, hey, half-truths are truths. So they pressed him further, and he admitted, quote, Yes, we were more than friends. But then said, They never kissed. I'm not a kisser. Kissing is intimate. Kissing is more intimate than sex. And to that I say, are you pretty woman, Christopher Darden?
3: <laughs> <laughs> I do everything but kiss on the mouth. Everything but kiss on the mouth. I have said that exact phrase to my husband when I'm very, <laughs> like, sick. And I'm like, look, I'll do everything but kiss on the mouth. <laughs> and then I laugh hysterically because, I mean, it's, it's a riot being around me. You're telling me. You don't have to tell yeah. me about that. Um. Then he
4: was asked to describe Marcia Clark in one word. His response?
3: Fire. Interesting.
4: He clarified. I don't think fire is romantic. I think fire is passion. And I just want to say, I think I'm already writing the fan fiction where Sarah Paulson and Sterling K. Brown, they just bend over tables and there's no mouth kissing but there is quote fire passion but that is something else entirely is actors and that's a narrative and that's just i I think i i think i have a i think i'm attracted equally to sarah paulson and sterling (laughs) k brown if i'm being honest with you (laughs) anyway yeah but i digress Marcia says she's only returned to the downtown Los Angeles courtroom where the trial originally took place once in the early 2000s. She said, quote, I went back to do a TNT pilot based on a novel I had written called Guilt by Association. I couldn't have done it before then. It was so painful. Every memory of that courtroom was so horrifying. That's her talking about this in 2016. Just keep in mind. Wow. The case was happening in 94-95. So... In terms of what her days look like, in an interview she, she gave in 2016, she said she rises around 7 a.m., sits in her kitchen, and types at her computer for several hours. Then we'll head out to exercise. She works five days a week, but not sequentially. She'll write for two or three days, then take a day off here and there. She has many close friends, including former assistant district attorney Lynn Reed, an ex-colleague, and several in the entertainment business, whom she won't name. Quote, they're my anonymous industry friends. I like that she keeps it, Close to the chest. I like that. She also professes not to have any current religious beliefs. She says, I'm just not a religious person. Not at all. I consider myself a spiritual person. I was always very drawn to Buddhism, Hinduism. I still meditate. And to this day, she has never once doubted O.J. Simpson's guilt. And then they asked her a question that I
3: was jazzed
4: about. They asked whether she believed his behavior might have been influenced by CTE chronic traumatic right. encephalopathy encephalopathy the brain disease that recently in the past you know what 10 years ish has been exposed as a major problem for football players we discussed that i think in in on I a think patreon it was on episode patreon. Yeah. and i of course talked about it in the china episode of the show right. um she says Quote, I have thought about it, but from what I understand, it causes explosive behavior, unpredictable behavior. I have never heard that it promotes this kind of planned behavior. And I thought that was very interesting.
3: Uh Uh-huh.
4: Yeah. Since the verdict, she has not laid eyes on most of the people involved, except for O.J. Simpson. His armed robbery trial was something that she covered for Entertainment Tonight. She spotted him in the courthouse cafe. He was walking towards his area of the cafeteria, which was kind of cordoned off for him, she says. And as he passed by, he looked at me and said, "Miss Clark? And I said, Mr. Simpson? That's it. When asked, did you feel anything? She responded,
3: no. And smiled. Major props to her for responding with Mr. Simpson because I would have been, like, fuckface and, like, continued on, you know? Like, I got no time for his <laughs> Murderer. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. So,
4: as we know, Marsha resigned from the district attorney's office after losing the O.J. Simpson case and then left trial practice behind her. She wrote the book, without a doubt, which I have referenced in the episode, with Teresa Carpenter in a deal that was reported to be worth $4.2 She's also worked as a legal commentator for such outlets as NBC, CNBC, and Fox. And as I mentioned, she has become a published author with a series of books featuring her literary alter ego, Los Angeles District Attorney Rachel Knight. These books began in 2011, of course, with Guilt by Association, which, as we know, was adapted as a TV pilot for TNT in 2014. She also wrote Guilt by Degrees, Killer Ambition, and The Competition uh, using that character. In 2016, she started a new series of books with a new lead character named Samantha Brinkman. This series features uh, a woman who is a defense attorney. These books include Blood Defense, Moral Defense, and Snap Judgment. Uh, And one is being adapted into a TV series for NBC, which is co-written by Marsha. Marcia says she never expected to be an author, but said, quote, As a lawyer, I came to understand early that storytelling plays a very important part when you address a jury, so I guess my instincts have always kind of been there when it comes to weaving a narrative. She says she read The Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew, Mystery Fictions as a Child, and said, I've been addicted to crime since I was born. I was making up crime stories when I was a four- or five-year-old kid. So, sounds to me like she's one of us. Yeah. In August 2013, Marsha lived her childhood acting dreams and appeared as attorney Sidney Barnes in a Pretty Little Liars episode called Now You See Me, Now You Don't. In 2015, she was parodied on the sitcom Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt in the form of the character Marsha, which of course was implied to be her, who at that in that episode was being implied to be in a relationship with, quote, Chris Darden. Uh, <laughs> she was portrayed by Tina Fey. And Tina Fey Ugh. was nominated for an Emmy for Outstanding Guest Actress in a Comedy Series for that role. Which isn't really uh, doesn't really matter, but I felt like I wanted to uh, include that because it's fun. Of course. Marsha also appeared in the 2016 documentary miniseries O.J. Mar- Made in America. Um, I've already referenced that she was played by Sarah Paulson, who was uh, breathtaking in the 2016 television series The People vs. O.J. Simpson American Crime Story. Uh, Sarah Paulson earned a Primetime Emmy Award and a Golden Globe Award for that role, and Marsha did attend the Emmy Awards with Sarah Paulson on September 18th, 2016. In 2018, Marsha headlined a true crime series on A&E called Marsha Clark Investigates the First 48. Of that show, Marsha said, This series feels like a continuation of a mission that I've been on my whole life, to discover the truth, bring that truth to light, and seek justice that has always been a driving force for me. I couldn't be more excited or more honored to be a part of it. Other television appearances include being a special correspondent for Entertainment Tonight, providing coverage of high-profile trials and reporting from the red carpet at award shows such as the Emmys. She was a guest attorney on the short-lived television series Power of Attorney, also featured on Headline News where she analyzed the Casey Anthony trial. And in July 2013, she provided commentary for CNN on the trial of George Zimmerman in Florida, Uh, for the homicide of Trayvon Martin, which she has gone on record saying was deeply affected her. That whole case she found very difficult. Of course. Clark wrote a pilot script for a TV series called Borderland, which centered on a very dark version of the district attorney's office, which was purchased by FX, but was never produced. She has also contributed true crime articles to publication The Daily Beast. And in 2019, she appeared in the 18th season finale of Gordon Ramsay's reality series Hell Kitchen, Hell's Kitchen as a VIP guest diner for winner and season six veteran Ariel Contreras-Fox. Perhaps this is one of her anonymous industry friends. Hey! In conclusion, it was nearly impossible to try and get through everything there is to say and report about Marcia Clark. I think her story is incredible and that she paved the way for so many women to come after her, both in the field of law and in many other professions. Being a single mom trying to do her job and having to deal with constant criticism about her clothing choices, her hairstyle, being scrutinized for every move is not something I would wish upon anyone, certainly not someone as accomplished as Marsha. And while no one, no one is more obsessed with the sexual tension between Sarah Paulson's Marsha Clark and Sterling K. Brown's Christopher Darden, I do think it's important to to mention that I think it's insane that in real life... They had to deal with those accusations in real time because she was single and a woman. Because someone is single and a woman automatically implies there has to be an affair going on. It was honestly as though a woman had never done that job before. And if I can say it, it's boying. Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails,
3: I'm Lauren Ash. Oh, Lauren motherfucking Ash. Thank you kindly. Jesus Okay, I took some notes. Let's get into it. (laughs) I don't really know where most of these go. I cracked into a watermelon
4: white claw at some point, and that's why I got a little slurry there. Not that I'm drunk at all, but I
3: always find it, it gets my tongue loose. Uh, as loose as you hope Sterling came from circles Paulson are <laughs> I get it It's I, I love a bit I love when it comes back and I, I, love it I so listen yes Short answer, um, yes oh god okay this is gonna go all over the place but I'm I'm, I'm taken back to the beginning so we're it, it, it'll make sense if it makes sense and it won't let's do long. it yep uh, well done to Marsha's parents an engineer and a very impressive lawyer Right? Come on. Wow. Well done. Um, I really liked the term very, very handsome boyfriends. (laughs) I I know. I like that. But I was also like, I get it, Marsha. I get why I see her as like, I get why I've always felt like a kinship with her. If I'm like, okay, she likes pretty. I get it. Yeah. Same, Marsha. Same. Uh, Professional uh, backgammon player it's not a job I had ever heard of. Yeah, same. I've heard backgammon, but it's always like old people playing it in a movie.
4: Yeah, and it was apparently, like, so massive at the time, I almost went on a side note about it. To be honest with you, there was so much about professional backgammon at the time, I got overwhelmed. And I was like, don't go down that road, you're gonna, no. it's too much, it's too no, much.
3: because then a week from now, you'll be like, oh my god. Would it be weird if I traveled to Florida because there is a backgammon tournament happening and I want to see the number one, whoever it is in the, like, oh, because this is, this is what we are. We go in hard and we just, we go, we're in all in immediately. That's just too We go in hard and we come out soft. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know anymore. (laughs) I don't know, but I like it. Uh, Gabby, you had your chance and you blew it. Uh, Tijuana divorce sounds like a kinky sex move.
4: (laughs) (laughs) It does. It really does.
3: Uh, Brad Pitt in Ocean's Eleven is one of my favorite characters of all time. Absolutely. Partially because he just eats. Mm -hmm. Every scene he's eating something else and consuming something else. It, Mm -hmm. for some reason, makes me laugh so hard. He could consume me. I don't know anymore. Oh, look, the bullet train media. Yeah, the media, the press tour. Yeah, I get it. I get it. It's he's brought a new energy. It's aw- him
4: it. on that press tour; those outfits. He's awoken something in me that I didn't know existed, and I just want to say thank you, Brad Pitt.
3: I like that. I like yeah. that a lot. Uh, fuck Gabby's mother, and fuck the O.J. Simpson defense team. <laughs> yeah. Bar her from crying. Is the hardest thing I think I've ever heard. It's just like I can only imagine, like, oh, Your Honor, come on, like, amazing, amazing, I know. Uh, you you mentioned Hawkins a lot. Like you said, the name Hawkins, and I cannot hear Hawkins without thinking of both Stranger Things and Cheesies. Not connected. Shout out to Uh, Hawkins Cheesies. Made in my hometown, Belleville, Ontario. I actually wrote down shout out to Steve Harrington, because of course. uh, And Belleville, Ontario, separately. I got you. I got ahead of you. you I got ahead of you. No, but uh, yeah. I mean, my God. Um, An old man being racist. How very cliche, Harvey Giss. Ya boying. Boying. Yeah. Uh, Nothing bugs me as much as women being described as shrill. Yep. Oh, you mean she's speaking? I I hate that so much. Uh, And the fact that it was a woman doing it? Yeah. Oh, fuck that Washington Post article, there I
4: And I know that she was trying to like, encapsulate what was being said at the time, I get it. But I was like, I just think there's ways that
3: you can present it that are a little more uh, allied. That's what I felt. Yes! Yeah. Uh, Marsha, not that you're listening, but to Marsha, I say the O.J. loss was not on you. No, no. The whole... I can't, I can't even, I don't even want to say the word, but the whole glove thing was not your choice. It was not. It was not your fuck-up. Uh You were also thrown to the wolves, so... You know, Uh, you said the word hallmarks. My brain immediately thought, "Oh my God, Christmas movies are going to be coming out soon," and I got full titillated about (laughs) thinking about all that list is going to come out, and I'm going to have to organize it. I'm trouble. Uh, Fuck you to the media who scrutinized Marcia so harshly and so unnecessarily. So, thank you. Yes, I love back-to-back media, dear media. Men and women can work together without having an affair. Believe it or not. I know it sounds wild, ladies and gentlemen. Somehow. And people. Somehow. Uh, You said E.T., and I know you meant entertainment tonight, but in my head I thought the alien. And I was like, now that's an interview I want to see. He called Darden at home. (laughs) 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 Oh Yeah, with passion. Oh, my God. Fire. I want to one day be described as fire. Yeah. And I don't even care if they mean it in a good or bad way. I just like it. And I'm going to say this. Yeah. I don't think that there, I don't think that there's any way that that can be bad, right? Yeah, right. Maybe that's why I'm like it can be either way because I know, I know it can't be negative. Uh, this revelation that it's like kissing is too passionate, like it's too intimate, and I'm just like. How deep do you kiss, Darden? Like, was that? I don't even think I can
4: repeat what I was about to
3: say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the kind of attitude I like. Yep. Um, oh, God. Almost done. Uh, I couldn't be happier that we have found a way to bring up Sarah Paulson again. Oh. Uh, I assume by now the dear people know... Episode 71, Nicole Brown Simpson. That's when we first mentioned uh, Sarah Paulson. And that is when Lauren said one of my favorite quotes ever said on this show, which is, Sarah Paulson is a gift to the craft. (laughs) And I stand by it. Yeah. I stand by it. She is. She is. Um, Rachel Knight books are now on my wish list. Yeah. How have I never read one of those books? It's beyond me. Um, And finally... (laughs) Of course she loved Nancy Drew. I know. That makes sense. Oh, my God, that makes sense. Oh, Marsha Clark. I have so much, so much anger for so many people. And it's just, I also love they tried to destroy her. And she was like, fuck you.
4: I'm not. She, she And she had to pivot, which is yeah. sad to me. That it was like this was something that she really felt passionately about. Yes. She was damn good at And she did have to pivot. And I'm glad that she has been thriving in the way that she has been. Um, And I'm sure she will continue to. But it is, you know, because, again, it's one of those things where she when I started to hear about her story and about her assault that happened in Israel and the fact that she kept it secret for so long. And and the fact that that was really what inspired her to get involved in law. And then the fact that she was on the other side and was like, I cannot do this. I cannot do this. I have to be a voice for victims. I was like, I just think that there's humanity there that no matter how you slice it, it's there. And you can say that it's like, well, all lawyers are X, Y, and Z. And that may be true to whatever extent, but that, that you know, there's stuff that's required for the job, et cetera, et cetera. But like, to me, I just think that, that her intentions were rooted in a place of trying to do the right thing um, based on her own, uh, traumatic experience. And to me, it's, it's again, the fact that she then was, in a sense, traumatized uh, in a different way during that case, to me, is just so, so annoying. And again, yes. she had been a man, I don't think that any
3: fraction of that would have happened to her. Oh, 100%. And I'm also fascinated. Uh, I mean, I know we'll never know, but I'd love to know what her kids have to say about that time I know they were very young but like I'm curious what they remember from their childhood and like do they remember like she was never around dad was the main one or is it no no they remember she was always there she was you know took them on trips she did the stuff that the ex was an asshole and claimed she didn't from what I have read about it, which is
4: fairly minimal, but from what I have read, they don't really have a mem- memory of, of that time because they were so young. Right. Um, and they only have, from everything I've read, like, glowing,
3: wonderful things to say about their mother. Of so, Of course. Which says volumes. Because even yeah. if they don't remember, at that stage, you know, with their brains growing and that kind of thing, they're going to remember if their mom's not there – yeah, and bar- barely spends time with them. They're go- not going to have a close relationship with her. There's well, going to be a distance there.
4: A hundred percent. And I think the other thing that's important too, like as a child of a single mother, personally, I think that it's important too to remember that that this idea about time spent and and whatever, like no one. What's the alternative? Yeah, that she has no job. What's the alternative? She has to work. She's being put in a position where she has to work, of course. And also, people have a right to want to work and want to be functional in society if if sure they are able. Um, I think that it's a real slippery slope when people go down that kind of mindset that people did with her about like what kind of mother are you? And it's it's like there is there is always a second caregiver. Or let me rephrase. There is typically, for any child or children, a second caregiver. Sure. It is just the way it is. It is virtually impossible for one single parent to do absolutely everything. It it just can't. How? If the child is not school age, you're going to need a daycare caregiver, et cetera, in the daytime. And I think the fact that even in the 90s, it was so foreign, this concept that she would not be a full-time daytime caregiver, is is. It feels impossible, but it is really a reminder of, again, how little how much progress, but how little progress had been made. And I think again, it's yeah. it's like it's so interesting to me that we just never say it to men. We never say Boy. to a dad, "Well, are you a good dad? You're not at home all day. Well, who's your child with all day? Dad, even if both parents are working, if both uh, parents are working, mm-hmm. no one questions when a child is with a caregiver even if both parents are working but when it's a single mom it's always well you know what i mean yeah and that's something that's really got to go cuz i don't know what the alternative yeah. would be for that mother and i think that the fact that she was juggling all of that yeah on top of what she was dealing with being the you know so public and so constantly attacked and abused in the media
3: kudos oh yeah and i I mean, I say this a lot, but nothing bugs me as much as even the concept of things you'll say to a mother, but things you'll never say to the father. Yep. A father could take his kids, you know, to a park and it's like, ah, look at you, father of the year. And then a mother like goes and runs errands without the kids. And it's like, don't you feel guilty leaving them at home? How come you didn't take them with you? And it's just like the husband can do anything. Yeah. There's it it's oh, by the way, you're having a baby. They're never gonna ask the husband, like, are you gonna stay home? Are you gonna like how are you gonna juggle it? The woman is always asked, how yeah. are you gonna manage work and the child? Yeah. And it's like, well, well, there's m- multiple of us, so I'll figure it out. But it's it drives me insane. And I have seen a few
4: occurrences too, um, where on TikTok of all places, but where it's been a single dad where there yeah. is no mother in the situation for whatever sure. circumstance. And those single dads working 12, 14 hour days and yeah. being, being lauded as being the closest thing to an angel walking the earth. Oh, what this dad is doing to support these children. And I don't disagree. But what I disagree with is the fact that no one's commenting on who's caring for those children when this guy is working all these hours. It's the fact that yeah. it's it's mind-blowing to believe that he would be a primary caregiver and work full-time. And it's like, but when a mother does it, she's flawed and not giving enough time and all of the yep. above? That that mindset's got to change. Period.
3: 100%. I'm sick of women aren't enough. Yeah. No matter what we do, it's never yeah. enough. Yeah, And then being raised that way with that mentality, then you grow up and suddenly it's like, yeah, it's why I can't take a break. If I'm sitting down for five minutes, then I'm like, well, now I feel guilty for not doing anything. Yeah. It's like, you're allowed to do things. Go do something else. You're allowed to do more than five minutes of homescapes at a time if you want. You're allowed to whatever you want to do. Everybody's allowed but because of that stupid mind frame that we grew up with hopefully the next generation is growing up with a kinder gentler i hope so i
4: hope so yeah yeah if
3: nothing else lord knows it's being taught on tiktok i'm sure they're doing good work over there they are they yeah. are and speaking of good work lauren ash thank you for your research it was educational Thank you. It was enlightening. Thank you. I knew so little about her. I knew about her and what things I had learned during uh, the OJ episode, which I focused on the case as opposed to her. Um, but I knew that she was torn apart by media. Uh, but other than that, I didn't know most of these things. So look at you. Well done. Thank you kindly. And thank you, dear listeners. For taking this journey with us, we appreciate your support. As always, give us a follow on the socials. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at True Crime and Cocktails, or on Twitter at Not Detectives. And if you're looking to spend a little extra time with these chuckleheads, maybe you want a little extra true crime. Maybe you just want. Two nutty broads <laughs> talking about speed, because Lord knows you're going to get that quite often over sure. there. Uh, head over to patreon.com slash truecrimeandcocktails. There are polls for future episodes, live Q&As, bonus episodes. If you want more, Patreon's the place to go. And if you're looking for any True Crime and Cocktail merch... Head over to TrueCrewMerch.com, the only place to get official True Crew, uh, True Crew. Fuck, she almost made it. True Crime and Cocktails merch. Lauren, would you like to tell the people about our next episode? On the next True Crime and Cocktails, Thelma Todd. Oh Ooh. yeah, we're going old school hollywood and i you're welcome dear listeners i'm going back to the other side of this bus <laughs> i'm going back to being more of a passenger than a than a driver i don't know how sober i'll be we'll find out at the time but i'm yeah. excited for old school hollywood lauren would you like to say good night to the people good night sarah paulson good night dave Grohl.